You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 402. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1A in the APG headquarters building in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show was recorded on the 29th of November, 2019. In today's episode, a nose wheel collapse in Odessa, triple seven compressor stall at LAX, more news, your feedback, and this week's plane tale, land suit. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 402 is ready for pushback. Hello and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. We've been aviation podcasting for more than 10 years, covering the latest aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, former U.S. Air Force pilot, currently a captain for a major legacy airline for coming up on 31 years in just a couple of weeks, uh, based in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, the airline for which I fly and Dana flies, we like to call Acme Airlines. It's a virtual airline. And here to help me out today, is from his studio in the English countryside. He's a professional photographer, a former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, former captain for an international airline based in London. It's Captain Nick. Well, hi there, Chip. 31 years. That's, uh, that's a long time, mate. They should give you a medal. They should. Looking forward to a great show, anyway, and uh, happy Thanksgiving to all you folk in Fatland. And happy Black Friday. We're recording on the Friday after the U.S. Thanksgiving. And uh, many, I'm sure of you, are many of you out there, I'm sure, are out there shopping, perhaps, except for the people that are here with us live. Um, let's see. We also have from... The Northwest Atlanta suburbs, a barbecue master, motorcycle rider, boat skipper, underwater photographer, and imbiber of dark liquids, and a captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, Captain Dana. Uh, good morning, guys. Great to be back on another fantastic episode. And happy Thanksgiving to all of those in the U.S. Really had a uh, great Thanksgiving, and I hope you did too, so great to be here on a black friday yes all right we're gonna fade that out and we're gonna go right into the news stand by for news
Okay, on the 21st of November, not long ago, uh, a Turkish Airlines Boeing 737-800 performing flight 467 from Istanbul to Odessa in Ukraine with 134 people on board was on final approach to Odessa's runway 16 when the crew initiated a go-around at a very low height. The aircraft climbed to 8,000 feet, positioned for another approach to runway 16, and landed about 25 minutes later. At uh, 2054 local time, the aircraft came to a stop on the left edge of the runway with the nose gear collapsed and the nose beyond the edge of the paved surface. The aircraft was evacuated via slides. No injuries are being reported. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, perhaps there were injuries. They're just not going to report them. Um, mode S transponder data transmitted by the aircraft suggest the aircraft actually touched down on first approach and performed a balked landing. Uh, the airline reported that the aircraft departed the runway after the second attempt, I guess, and uh, trying to kind of correct back onto the runways when the nose gear collapsed. Related, let's see, um, the occurrence was rated a serious incident and is being investigated. Weather at the time looks like um, variable winds. Um, again, I'm, I forget the uh, formula to convert meters per second into knots, uh, but it says, uh, what, 090 at 11 meters per second? Is that high, Nick? Meters per second, 11? What did we double it? Yep, we double it. So 22 knots. Uh, so uh, it the, the was gusting, what, uh, 34 okay. uh, later on, but um, and it's mainly across. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that, but, you know, I wouldn't think this is beyond the wit of most pilots. No. Yeah. And uh, looks like the, the first um, METAR uh, or, uh, yeah, showed uh, light snow as well, overcast skies, light snow. Not, you know, not wonderful weather, but as you say, uh, not anything that a uh, professional airline pilot shouldn't be able to handle. So, no, uh, that's exactly right. And what's more, the pilots that fly in that region should be pretty used to these kind of conditions. It's their bread and butter, after all. Right. Okay. I uh, just wonder how Mode S Transponder would actually suggest that the aircraft actually touched down. Well, um, I guess it gets to the same height as the runway. Yeah, that would be a good clue. Mm. Yeah, they're pretty accurate. Um, yeah. You know, you look at FlightAware and uh, Flight Radar 24, you look at some of these graphs and everything else, and uh, most close. of them. Mm -hmm. but, I don't you know, know if it's I, actually... I would imagine it's the flight recorder that would actually... Yeah, but I don't know if it's actually relevant. The damage seemed to come on their second That's approach, true. not the first. True. That's true. All right. Well, really not much else to say about that, um, except that... Well, I was just going to say, well, that may actually not be true, Nick, because if, if they had bounced the landing and kind of hit the nose, that may have caused some problems with control of the controllability of the airplane. No, I don't, they didn't mention time. anything about the um, first Bach landing doing any damage to the nose wheel. It was actually them Second. departing the runway and then coming back on, hitting that hard lip on the uh, runway edge, which collapsed the nose wheel, basically what uh, I gathered from this. Yeah, me too, but I just playing devil's advocate as i like to do okay uh moving on to item b um a philippine airways is it airways or airlines let me make sure i get this right philippine airlines 
Boeing 777-300, performing Flight 113 from Los Angeles to Manila, with 342 passengers and 18 crew, was in the initial climb-out of runway 25 right when... Hang on, I had to resize this uh, window. Okay. Um, climb out of runway 25 right when upon contacting departure the crew declared mayday, mayday, mayday the right hand engine the G, uh, was a GE90 was surging the aircraft climbed to 5,000 feet positioned for an approach to runway 25 left the aircraft landed safely on runway 25 left about 12 minutes after departure and there's a picture that I threw in there this is from the Aviation Herald uh, the initial liftoff is where the engine, the right engine, started exhibiting signs of distress, of uh, compressor stalling, nice flame shooting out the uh, back of that huge engine. And uh, there is um, some uh, liveatc.net audio that accompanies this. If you are interested in hearing that and uh Great analysis, by the way. Uh, I'll throw another, um, what? Plug. Plug. There we go. Plug. <laughs> Thank Liz for that. <laughs> Thank you, Liz, uh, for um, Blancolirio's um, channel on YouTube, uh, Juan Brown. And again, it's called uh, Blanco Lirio, uh, again, in the show notes. Uh, does a really nice job of kind of analyzing the uh, incident at LAX. By the way, Juan, he's out on medical leave right now. But he is a first officer on the 777 for an American major airline. And so he has some uh, good perspective on this incident. But looks like they did a very nice job. Now, there were some people in the comments uh, kind of criticizing uh, the crew because they didn't immediately raise the landing gear after takeoff. But I think that my co-hosts here will... Uh, let you know that uh, sometimes when things are just going to heck in a handbasket uh, right away and got all kinds of bells and alarms and and uh, lights and everything else lighting up the cockpit, sometimes you forget something uh, basic like raising your landing gear. So, yeah, often it, uh, an emergency just breaks your flow uh, because you are. You get the rotate call, you start pitching up, the next thing you're looking for is positive climb and you respond with gear up. And that's so common and so ingrained in us. If for some reason you don't get that positive climb call, uh, you probably won't ask for the gear up until quite a little bit later when you suddenly go, hang on a minute, there's something missing here. And with all the distractions going, I'm not surprised. But yeah, we would love to have done it perfectly. And when we get in the sim, uh, if we practice an engine failure on takeoff and we don't get that exactly right, we repeat it. But, uh, you know, it, I, I think it's for, it's forgivable on the occasion. But the one thing I love about this uh, particular incident is that the whole thing is like covered in two paragraphs. Tick. Thank you very much indeed. Aircraft return to the airfield safely. Yep. And losing an engine on a twin engine airplane particularly when they're out there on the wings and you've got all the handling problems associated with it, all the drills to perform, et cetera, et cetera. It's so nice to see an, an emergency that has been well handled and the crew got their aircraft back safely. Good point, because there are so many accidents that we've covered uh, on this show that have not resulted in successful outcomes because apparently the people forgot how to 
fly an airplane uh, with an engine out. Exactly right. Yeah. Uh, great job. By the way, the, I think the thing that was really kind of uh, provocative about this whole thing is because, as is true in, in most cases these days, with all the proliferation of uh, smartphones and everything else, there was a lot of, or there was some passenger video of the uh, incident, and you could see the uh, the fireball coming out of the um, back of the right engine, and it was uh, very impressive, very exciting looking, and, and you know makes for good news and all that kind of stuff. But uh, as Nick said, they did a fantastic job of um, you know handling the situation and bringing it back around, just like we're trained. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, I don't know about the triple seven, but uh, modern Airbuses uh, will actually help you get exactly the right amount of uh, rudder uh, when you've had an engine failure, um, which, uh, you know, is important. I personally feel that's a handling skill the pilots uh, need to maintain, so I am uh, I expect them to be able to do both kinds, you know, uh, put the rudder in and then uh, keep it right, then manually trim and get it all nice sorted, and then have to adjust that trim during the circuit. If you start to rely on a aircraft system doing that for you it uh you know that's a skill you tend then to lose because it's not like we practice these very often we do them in the sim yes every six or nine months but that's not exactly every day of our working lives i wonder if they Um, do have some kind of a profile where they 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 keep the automatic rudder uh compensation um inactive yeah, just, well, on, just on the three fifty, sorry, uh, the three thirty, and the later three forties, we had this system in, and we would be required to do an entirely manual uh, engine failure and fly the aircraft manually for the uh, entire recovery. Uh, so yes, we we did, but also we were expected to be able to do it using the automatics because that's the much preferred way mm-hmm. uh, after all if you've got automatics you should use them because it uh, takes the workload down allows you to step away slightly from the uh, situation and it allows you more brain power to make all the considerations you need to think about before you decide where to take this uh, air- aircraft and have i dealt with all the problems associated with this engine. Have I uh, informed the right people? Uh, mm-hmm. Have I informed the passengers? Have I ticked all the boxes? Uh, and being able to use the automatics when you're doing that is is great. Yeah. So we used to have to do both. Well, I think that uh, is the right way to do it. Yeah. Lost Dana for the moment. I'm yeah. sure he'll be back. He's having some kind of a technical issue, apparently, um, because every time he tried to select his video, um, there was nothing but a blank space so a black box a black box uh kylie hello from chicago uh she says this may be a silly question or here why don't i do this i can actually put her comment there on the uh, screen this may be a silly question aren't triple seven planes normally really heavy yeah especially on takeoff and you're heading from la to manila uh how were they able to land that quickly after taking off and i'm not sure if the triple seven. I would imagine they have fuel dumping capability on it, um, but yeah. I think. Oh, you yeah. know what? Um, Juan Brown in that Blancolirio uh, YouTube channel does a nice job of explaining why you don't always have to lower the weight to your maximum landing weight um, in in certain emergency situations, and you have to take into account several different things, like the extra weight of the airplane, how that's going to uh, cause you a uh, a longer 
landing uh, role and it's going to be increased brake energy used. You're probably going to have hot brakes. In fact, uh, this, uh, this incident, they ended up going to the end of the runway, turning off and taxiing back to um, one of the gates. And while they were taxiing back, uh, they said that they were uh, unable to continue because it appeared that every tire had flattened uh, the fuse plugs and all of the, how many main wheels are there? 12? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. I think, I think yeah. that's right. Uh, every single one of them, uh, because the temperatures got so high in the inner tire pressure and also, I mean, inner tire temperatures and as well as brake temperatures caused the fuse plugs to uh, work, which uh, basically deflate the tires nice and gradually so they don't have exploding tires. But again, Juan Brown does a really nice job of explaining how that all worked. Yeah. Um, once you've got a situation under control, uh, in other words, the engine is either shut down or it's not producing um, or of concern anymore. You might, might be running a bit rough at idle, but whatever. Um, there is definitely a, um, a thought that you uh, might want to jettison fuel uh, rather than landing overweight. Of course, uh, almost every airliner I know of uh, can land at the max takeoff weight, but uh, it needs to do so very gently. Uh, for our type, uh, it was a landing descent rate of less than 300 feet a second. So um, that's, that's, that's nice, gentle landing. 300 uh, feet per minute, feet actually. Minute. Yeah. Sorry, 300 feet a well, second. That would be really... Quite fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, you, you need to do it gently. Uh, but brake energy is definitely a consideration. Uh, but hopefully they did those calculations. Um, I didn't actually see the video of it. Um, was it still puffing out fire um, through the whole time, Jeff? Do you know? I didn't. Um, oh, yeah. Um, well, the video that they have supplied um, at some point, um, they didn't show the approach and landing that, that I can recall. Um, it was just the uh, the initial level off at 5,000 feet, I think, the initial climb out and level off. But I'm not sure if that thing was still um, compressor stalling the entire way or what. Because yeah. um, if, it, if it was and you didn't, for whatever reason, want to shut it down, uh, I don't think I'd like to mix uh, fuel jettison with puffs of flame coming out the back. That yeah. might uh, be an interesting combination. Uh, hey, there he is. Hey, there he is. Hey. That's crazy. Anyway, uh, so we were just kind of following up, Dana, on the um, uh, cleaning up a little bit, uh, talking with Kylie, asked a great question about, um, you know, why they didn't dump fuel and why they came back so quickly uh, back to LAX. And we talked about uh, what's required for an overweight landing and, uh, you know, considerations and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean. I'm sure you, I'm sure you said, you know, knock a circle around on one engine just over the ocean. Just why spend the time doing that? Right. Right. Just get back on the ground. But, you know, every situation is different. You know, you might have to try to get the airplane on and uh, back on a, nun a runway that is relatively short. And in that case, then, you know, the lesser of two evils might be to, you know, take the risk of uh, dumping fuel. And anyway, um, did a great job by that crew. And um glad to uh, see a happy outcome. Hmm. 
was it the last show that we entitled um, Win- Window Shade War? No, that was uh, a few episodes back. The one before. Oh, the yeah. one before. Oh, yeah, but the one before the uh, 399. Okay. Uh, yeah, so I'm sure that many of you see, have seen this uh, video. <laughs> it's been making the rounds on social media. And uh, uh, apparently there's a dude filming himself closing the window shade. And this may be the video that you were referring to, uh, Nick, on an earlier show. Is it? I think it probably is, yes. So he's actually having to work his his hand, his arm, around the seat in front of him and slams the window shade closed on not his row, but the row ahead of him. And interestingly, um, he is recording all of this himself. So he's basically, you know, he's the guilty party in this. I think most of us would agree. Uh, also, interestingly, his own window shade is not closed. It's open. <laughs> he's trying to close somebody else's in somebody else's row. So that was uh, quite comical i think to uh, to watch this i'm not sure if this was some kind of a you know uh, a gag or a prank or something like that now that i'm thinking about it you know yeah it does seem a completely ludicrous action i'd be if i was the bloke whose window was being slammed by and by someone else i'd be tempted to keep a fork from my tr- meal tray <laughs> and every time he reached forward he'd get a forkful <laughs> yeah Anyway, uh, apparently we received this um, this article and uh, video from uh, Matt McDonald. Thank you, Matt. Uh, so we'll have that in the show notes if you want to watch the ridiculous um, exchange of window shades going up and down, up and down, up and down. I think we've yeah. talked about it ad nauseum. Some people are just nuts. But it does uh, bring me to uh, the fact that I'm reading uh, John Hutchinson's book, uh, The Wind Beneath My Wings, uh, prior to interviewing him uh, in a few days. And he does mention that on one of the Concorde aircraft that uh, he flew, he wasn't flying it, but um, they had a, a slightly deranged passenger, lady passenger, walking up and down the aisle wearing a mink coat and sneakers who um plunged her swiss army knife into the top of another passenger's head <laughs> oh and i'm going oh my god really did he uh, did she kill him no no he he had to have a, an operation because the tip of the blade broke off in his skull poor oh, man god. but um it just goes to show that these um these strange happenings aren't just limited to you know low-cost carriers or whatever i mean even on the uh one of the most expensive airplanes to fly in the world uh, there are weird people yeah <laughs> that goes without saying really <laughs> wow so she was just wearing a mink coat and sneakers and that was all Oh, no, no, no. I think uh, she was, sorry. Uh, <laughs> that, that was just some of the clothes she had that were looked a little unusual. I mean, a strange combination. Uh, it is, yeah, an odd combination. Uh, you know, we talk about um, airplanes that uh, with fly-by-wire uh, controls. We talk about fly-by-wire a lot on this show. And uh, this next article is, um, well, it's an outcome that uh, wasn't very good for this person. So if you do fly-by-wire, you need to fly above the wire, not at the same altitude. <laughs> so this is a, uh, a Piper PA-12, uh, what, 12A Super Cruiser. Looks like a, a J3 Cub. 
to me. I guess that's maybe a version of the Cub. Uh, I don't know. I don't know my Pipers very well. Was flying around up in uh, Minnesota, the Twin Cities area, on approach to Flying Cloud Airport. And uh, apparently there's some high-tension wires. Um, this was about seven to eight mile, nautical miles to the uh, southwest of Flying Cloud. And uh, the Cub got entangled in these, uh, these high-tension wires. It, w- it was just one solo pilot and uh, no injuries, uh, remarkably. And uh, there's a picture, a great picture of this, uh, this airplane just kind of dangling from the uh, high-tension wires. And uh, I'm just wondering, why were you it, flying solo that far away? <laughs> well, it looks, is there a picture of it? It looks like there's a hangar nearby. So perhaps in the no, bottom. That's, that's a farm. Oh, his farm. I'm just wondering if he flew his airplane into his farm, but or in and out of a field in his farm. But uh, anyway, I do think it's a shame. Unlike the other picture we saw uh, of the other almost identical incident, he hasn't climbed out and is sitting on the wing. Which right. Definitely a, a photo call shot missed. You know, that would have been perfect. Yeah. What was the other one was like a, like a ski lift, um, cables yeah, or something like that wires, somewhere. Yeah. yeah. I guess it's a slightly more dangerous on the count of the fact they're electric wise. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Yeah. As long as you don't touch ground, you, you're fine. All right. Okay. You don't, you don't, you won't get a shock, but, uh, even yeah, if you go probably. between two of those wires. So, uh, yeah, that's true. Ethan Allen in the Facebook uh, chat says he flies out of flying cloud airport. I wonder if he heard about this incident. Again, uh, what was the name of the little town that this was uh, near? Like Shaka, Shaka something or other? Shakopee. Um, Shakopee. Oh, Shakopee Fire Department. Yeah, I think that's uh, technically where it was. In fact, I think the Flying Cloud Airport is in Shakopee, if we're pronouncing that correctly. Anyway, uh, just thought that was kind of an odd-looking photo. Again, uh, if they keep doing this, we're going to have to ask them to start putting their registration upside down on the side of the fuselage, or, or paint it paint it upside down so that yeah, in case this yeah. happens, we'll be able to see the yeah exactly. Having said that, it looks like the registration that first picture isn't very good. It says W ninety eight SEN, or is that my imagination? It does yeah. look like that, doesn't it? Does it? <laughs> it sure huh. looks like it. Interesting. I wonder if this was in the case of somebody just trying to show off to somebody. And just screwed oh, up. Often is. Often yeah, is. Often screwed. is. <laughs> yeah, watch this. Oops. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because, <laughs> uh, how tall are those high tension? I know they some of those wires get up pretty high, but still, you know, pattern altitude for um, the airport would have been what one thousand feet above yeah. field elevation. Well, thousand feet AFE. Yeah. Um. Yeah. The, I mean, these don't look particularly in the high. The they're obviously power lines, but I don't think they're the high tension power lines that are really tall. I think these are based on looking at the height of the wing, um, and in that photo with the bar in the back, mm-hmm. I don't think it's much more than you know probably thirty feet off the ground. Yeah, that might be just the perspective here because it did I'm mention looking- in in another article that these are um, pretty big high tension lines, but I don't know. It doesn't really matter. He shouldn't have been flying that low. <laughs> Yeah. No. no. Anyway, I mean the, the the fire the fire bucket. Well, again, that's a different perspective. I mean, the fire bucket off the ladder is is as tall as getting to the you know the airplane. So it was a uh, they were 
tall enough, I guess, that it's uh, depicted on the VFR sectional charts. Um, yeah, well then. So it's definitely a hazard, apparently, especially for this guy. Yeah, you found him. Yeah. Uh, e. A busy bee. Congo, Dornier, 228-200 registration, 9 Sierra Golf, November Hotel, performing a scheduled flight from Goma to Beni in the Democratic Republic of Congo, with 17 passengers and two crew, was departing Goma's runway 17 at 9.10 local time, but failed to climb out, contacted electrical wires at very, oh, here we go again with the wires. <laughs> uh, very low height and impacted houses in the densely populated area of Bebere, just south of the runway. The aircraft burst into flames. All occupants perished in the crash. One serious injury and seven fatalities occurred on the ground. A search for victims both on the aircraft and on the ground is currently underway. Of course, this was uh, a few days ago. Um, one version of the load sheet identifies six passengers. Another version, 11 passengers. Uh, both papers identify nine Sierra Golf November Hotel as the accident aircraft on the 24th of November. Uh, let's see. The governor of North Kivu Pro uh, province stated that, quote, the aircraft missed its takeoff. <laughs> Never heard that term before. Uh, neither have I. Maybe that was a translation that uh, from whatever his language is to English somehow got a little. Uh, I don't know, kind of rearranged or something. Anyway, I've heard of missed approaches and missed balked landings, but not missed takeoffs. Hey, we we do know the takeoffs are optionals. Uh, is takeoffs are optional, landings mandatory. mandatory. Yes, I can't. I can't talk this morning yet again. I wonder why. Put your uh, teeth back in. Put <laughs> your teeth back in. Here we go. Now, let right. me do that again and edit that out, Jeff. Please. Sure, you can count take on offs, me. Takeoffs are optional. Landings are mandatory. We know that. Wow. Well said, Dana. Yeah. Very nice. The third time. <laughs> yeah. Shut. Okay. And I'm, I'm going to say shut up. I'm not going to edit it out either. I'm going to say that the probably the correct number of passengers was the one that the crew reported as they're required to on taxi out of uh, African airports, 17 passengers. So, uh, yeah. I would say that's probably right. That's a shame. Uh, weather wasn't uh, too bad. There were some cumulonimbus uh, in the area, a few at 1,800, 3,000 broke, 30,000 broken, actually. So, uh, you know, it was, uh, and in the pictures here um, of the aftermath, it looks like nice blue skies. So the weather doesn't seem to be a factor at all. Now, interestingly, uh, when I first got this from the Aviation Herald, this last paragraph that I've um, highlighted was not in the report, and now they're saying on the 27th of November uh, yesterday, or day before yesterday, um, the state's prosecution office announced that they have opened an investigation into the accident. The fuel truck that had fueled the aircraft immediately prior to the crash was seized for further investigation. Now, I don't know if that's significant or if that's just something that they do routinely, but uh, it almost kind of gives you the idea that perhaps uh, the aircraft was misfueled and uh, caused the uh, crash. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that most um, investigators would do that immediately to make sure that they could at least tick that box and say that it wasn't fuel contamination. But so, uh, yeah, 
Um, it's obviously one of the things you can get if you get a loss of power. I mean, it's one of the things you look at. But, yeah. Uh, um, the thing I was going to comment on was if you look at the very bottom picture of all the uh, buildings that have grown up around this airport, um, that, that you know, there's literally nowhere to go off the end of the runway without hitting uh, some kind of a dwelling, and that's fairly common because this sort of land is not considered prime real estate, so those less fortunate uh, often build uh, their houses or shacks or whatever, um, their impromptu dwellings uh, in those kind of areas. Uh, so, and, and it does really often encroach right onto the edge of the airfield. So uh, it just adds to the death toll when something like this happens. Yeah. Well, that's sad. Um, always sad to see a loss of life. Yeah. We, we talk a lot on this show about um, emotional support animals and uh, service animals. And uh, this article from the New York Times from uh, Jennifer Steinhauer is the uh, writer of the article. Um, so it starts off, and I'll start off by quoting Jennifer. It seemed, in retrospect, a bit of a low point, a medium-sized dog racing through an airplane at 30,000 feet, spraying diarrhea toward passengers throughout the cabin. Oh, isn't that a lovely thought? But according to some transportation officials, it was an increasingly typical scene that has stemmed from the growing use of comfort animals on airplanes, a situation that some injured veterans say is making life harder on them. The airline industry, which has been working to curb the number of comfort animals on board, has recently found an ally among the nation's war-wounded some veterans and service dog organizations say the overuse of untrained dogs, pigs, rodents, and amphibians, and at least once a small sloth as emotional support companions has made it difficult for veterans to get acceptance for their properly trained service animals on airplanes and beyond. So apparently uh, some of these veterans, disabled veterans, are actually being denied their service animals uh, because of the bad experiences that people with improperly trained or not or untrained animals aboard airplanes and uh, so there uh, a lot of veterans groups and others are working and advocating for changes to the law and of course that that's been something that uh, we've talked about quite a bit as well on the on the show to uh, you know stringer uh, stringer more stringent and stronger hence stringer rules uh, for uh, the requirements of uh, service animals and, and uh, emotional support animals. Yeah, I had uh, this this past week has been very interesting, especially around the holidays. I, on average, at least five or six uh, emotional support animals per flight on every flight that I've had this, this uh, really? last four days. Yeah. Good Lord. It's crazy. Oh. And so I was, you know, I was, we were talking about it on the flight deck and my, my FO had just flown with another captain, and this is a, a God honest true story, and I couldn't believe it. Uh, and he said, "Yeah, no, I witnessed this. There was a uh, a Leo, as we know, a law enforcement ag uh, agency uh, person came up to the flight deck, presented the captain with her credentials, and then uh, proceeded to take her emotional support animal and herself to the back of the airplane." Oh, you're kidding. I am not kidding you. And he, the captain then proceeded to call the, uh, <clears throat> the OCC to explain why he wants this person removed. 
and he had to explain this person has an emotional support animal that's on my airplane with a gun. Yeah, I don't want somebody that needs emotional support to also be armed. Exactly. Oh, I, thought meant, I thought the dog had a gun. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> well, it is the United well, States. Nick. It is the United States. So <laughs> anything is possible. Um, yeah, yeah so, no, that, no, that I could, would uh, raise the hands on the back of my neck as well. I, I, I was like, are you kidding me? Somebody that's a law enforcement. So finally, the captain did remove the person from the airplane and explain to that person after she pitched an absolute fit. Um, do you want me to call your superior officers and tell them that you're taking an emotional support animal on an airplane while you're carrying a gun? She walked away very quietly, apparently. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At that I point. I would expect so. Yeah. That, um, that was just crazy to me. Yeah. It is so we understand that people who have an absolutely genuine need and have properly trained their animals and they are registered with a well-recognized and authenticated organization, uh, we would make uh, one rule for them. And that would include, in particular, in my book, disabled or uh, traumatized veterans who find that one of these animals is either essential for their needs because the dogs do physical acts for them or for their mental well-being. But people who are just trying to evade the cost of putting their pet in the hold uh, and using this as an excuse, that's what we need to stand by. Yep. Because those animals are very unlikely to be properly trained and they're certainly not absolutely necessary. I mean, it's just like one of those things about human behavior and human, I don't know, there are always going to be people that are going to take advantage of others and bend the rules and in, you know, in their favor. And that's sad. We see it in the UK with disabled parking slots, people who, you know, they, they produce false uh, disabled stickers or ones that they've got for their mom and they use them to park anywhere they want all Mm -hmm. the time. Uh, And we feel the same way when you bring a, an animal on board the aircraft claiming that it's, uh, it's absolutely essential to your well-being. It's usually not. Uh, you know, one one questions if they're that in much need of a animal to help them uh, cope. Should they even be on the airplane? You know, are they, are they going to go? Yeah, are they going to go crazy on me on on the airplane? I guess one would argue that you know because of the emotional support animal being there that they wouldn't. But um, yeah, it's it's but it's it's out it's out of control. I mean, you the, you, uh, you, you the know, not well trained, Dana, and it becomes distressed. That must right. put the person who's carrying it in a doubly bad situation. So absolutely, I, I mean, yeah. look at the the attacks that have been on on, on passengers on the airplanes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's 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 absolutely crazy, and you can tell. I mean, the prop a proper animal that's being a pet in the cabin, as we call it, uh, you has to be in a pet carrier. And has to have a, you know, it has a green tag on it showing that that passenger has paid for that animal to be in the carrier and has to stay in the carrier. I, I've been walking around the airport this past week, and I mean, um, not as many passengers, but there are almost as many animals as passengers out there that are walking through the ter- terminal on leeches. <laughs> one, of the flight atten- crazy. one of the flight attendants in this article says, for a while there, it looked like we were operating Noah's Ark. <laughs> it's 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 crazy it's 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 absolutely ludicrous to me and And i'm uh, a dog lover i'm an animal lover oh yeah me too but you know there are places for them to be and of course micah wants us to be sure to um uh, express that there is a difference between an emotional support animal and a properly trained service animal and 
I think everybody knows that, but yes, just so that uh, you understand, we were talking about emotional support animals and and, and a lot of difference in cost as well. Yeah. Okay, that's enough of that. We can talk all day about emotional support animals and. Where's mine? I need one. Yeah, me too. I'm starting I've got to get one right under the table here. Uh, <laughs> I need to get my emotional support alcohol. Oh, Is it too early for that? That, oh, that word's just making me nauseous. Don't even say the word, please. <laughs> All right. Finally, uh, item G. Um, this article includes a video of a fuel truck at the Dallas-Fort Worth airport uh, hitting, taking out two parked Bombardier CRJ 900 aircraft. And mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> you got to watch the video. The guy just look, looks very perplexed. Um, uh, apparently, he runs into one and then in an effort to get away with from that one, hits another one. <laughs> um, no passengers or crew members were seriously injured. Paramedics evacuated uh, a flight attendant aboard one of the planes. Oh, so I guess it must have been kind of a, a big bump. The incident happened at 8.42 a.m. as both aircraft prepared for departure from Terminal B. American Airlines had to cancel flights to Shreveport and Lubbock that were to be served by the two damaged CRJ-900 jets. Passengers were rebooked on other flights, and I, I'm assuming that they got to their destinations. By the way, this these airplanes were actually uh, Mesa Airlines on behalf of the uh, major airline, uh, American Airlines. And uh, again, in the show notes, uh, there's a link at the very bottom of it uh, where you can watch the um, the video and... Uh, see how badly he this driver fuel truck driver mangled to two nine uh, crj 900s Amazing. i wonder what the bill will be <laughs> yeah i guess the insurance company is gonna end up paying a lot of money for that well yeah absolutely i mean all right i just put my hands up and go uh you know if we uh, if we paid people a proper de- decent wage then uh Perhaps, you know, we could get better trained personnel on the ramp. At the moment, it's costing, uh, certainly the insurers, a huge amount of money considering yeah. how often this sort of thing happens. I just, I don't understand how, how that happened. No, I don't know either. Uh, just two airplanes? Really? Yeah. You uh, Just, have you seen the video? You should watch it. It's very funny. Um, well, not uh, funny. Yeah. It's not really funny. <laughs> it's just interesting. Well, no, it's hurt, so it's a bit funny. Yeah. 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 <laughs> not funny for that field truck driver. I'm sure that he'll be looking for employment oh, dear, elsewhere. Yes. All right. That's it for the news, guys. And uh, now it's that time of the show where we kind of get all caught up with what's been happening between last show and this week's episode. And uh, let's see. Nick, would you like to go first? Oh, I'd love to. Okay. Uh, nothing much has happened. Uh, I did actually spend a very nice evening with an old uh, Phantom uh, pilot, um, similar era to me. Um, we apparently met when I had just uh, got onto the Phantom Force, and he was a young pilot going through his training and was holding on our um, base. And um, he wanted to have a look around a phantom and i was the junior pilot on the squadron so i was the one given the task of showing him around and although i don't remember meeting him because it used to be something we did fairly regularly it uh it made a big impression on him and uh, when he subsequently 
completed his training, he was delighted that he ended up on Phantoms on the very same squadron. So I think that's fantastic. The fact that he remembers it and it made an impression on him, uh, I, I found uh, quite humbling. So it was so nice to meet Pete. Uh, he uh, retired after uh, serving for quite a long career and um, he didn't uh, move to the airlines or anything. He uh, lived on, uh, well, he had, had a, a yacht. Uh, a, a big seagoing uh, vessel for a while, and then he now lives on a narrow boat. I don't know if you have those in the state. Are they the canal boats? Yes, they are. Uh, we saw them at Stafford, oh, yeah. uh, long thin uh, canal boats. Um, no, it wasn't Stafford. It was um, uh, uh, the the Shakespeare place. Uh, that's the place, uh, and that's it has momentarily gone from my head. <laughs> Me too. Uh, yeah, it was a lovely uh, place, Stratford upon Avon. That's it. Um, but he was near Stafford. Anyway, he uh, he lives on it permanently now with his lovely wife. Um, thank you, Liz. Uh, just five seconds late. Um, and, uh, you know, they have a lovely lifestyle. This this beautiful 60-something foot narrowboats uh, beautifully decked out with uh, great wood stoves and, uh, and a lovely kitchen. And, uh, you know, it's fully plumbed in. It's got everything you need. It's, uh, it's very traditional with a lovely... Uh, painted and brass engine with old dials and it just looks the business and uh, I, we hadn't met for years but it was lovely to go up and uh, spend an evening with him uh, drinking uh, on the mooring where he uh, is hooked up for the winter and uh, recounting old times so thank you very much indeed Pete uh, for that and uh, the rest of uh, this week has been fairly quiet uh, obviously I had my plane tail to do but I am and working hard organizing or working through a book for John Hutchinson, or written by John Hutchinson, the uh, retired uh, Concorde pilot. Um, and uh, he is going to be part of an interview uh, we, I'm doing uh, for PT UK next week. So looking forward to that. But an interesting book. Um, it very much uh, parallels a lot of the things I did. So uh, I have enjoyed reading it, not quite finished it yet, so still got a bit of work to do there. But other than that, life is uh, pretty good on my planet, thanks. We look forward to hearing your interview on, uh, what did you say, uh, podcast? Uh, it's not important. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Plain Talking uh, uh, UK. Yeah, hey, out, out there, if you're not already listening, watching uh, the PTUK, you should. Highly recommended. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Um, Dana. Hi. Hey, how you been? I'm good. How are you? Uh, fine, thank you. Have you done anything interesting between uh, the last show and this one here? Yeah, I actually flew a four-day trip, which was actually a three-day uh, uh, three days of flying because I had a very long overnight in a specific city that we have uh, a friend in. Oh. Do you happen to have that audio by chance? I do. Well, why don't you uh, why don't you go ahead and play that? Okay. That will... Now, just to let you know, I have not listened to either of these um, audio bits in the Dropbox that Mike has sent, and so they're unedited. And uh, so there's two. There should yeah. only be one. Well, no, there is one that didn't uh, include you. Oh, okay. So well, I you're not the that. only one in town, right? Well, that's true. All right, here we go. 
Well, hello, APG community. I am sitting with Maine Man Micah up here in the wonderful city of Scarborough, Maine, at Pho Hung. And that is a uh, Vietnamese restaurant that we just finished having a wonderful dinner and a wonderful evening. And my brother over here to my right got to meet Maine Man Micah, but he's being shy this evening. He just doesn't want to talk on the radio, so he's a little scared. So anyways, uh, without ado... He's, he's actually rubbing me in the back and being bashful and, and he's blushing and he's saying, oh, shut up and everything else. So he's being shy. It, you wouldn't know he's my brother because I'm not shy. Well, I can be shy, but not that shy. But he, he's, uh, he's not wanting to talk this evening. But anyways, um, I want to go ahead and say hello to the entire community. Uh, another unbelievably fun evening with the uh, wonderful main man, Micah. Great libations, great food. Well, actually, we didn't have any libations. We had water with lemon, uh, but great food for sure. And uh, so what I'd like to do is go ahead and pass the microphone over to main man, Micah, to explain how much fun and how, uh, how he came up with this great restaurant for us to share some great uh, food with. Well, thank you very much, Dana. I got to say, it's just absolutely great to see you. And first of all, who would have guessed that a guy like you would have such a good-looking brother? No you know, it's really... Right. Yeah, that's impossible. Yeah, if you're listening, he actually is talking, but he refuses to do it into the mic. Just want to point out that we are at Fa Hong, not Fo Hung, which would be something completely different. And we're not... Fo Hung. That's, that's, that's something else. And, uh, family show, folks, family. Exactly, and uh, the proprietor is not uh, one hung low. Um, but anyway, <laughs> Dana just spit out his water. It's a wonderful Vietnamese place. We've had some great dumplings. We had some crispy egg rolls. We had some wonderful spring rolls, and uh, the food was great. The company was great, and this has actually been a fabulous uh, weekend for me because here it is Tuesday of the week, the Sunday before, Tanya Wyman was here. We went to Becky's Diner, and Tanya and I got to visit. And while Tanya and I were visiting, she came back to my house before I took her back to the airport. We had a cup of tea, and as we're having our cup of tea, the phone rings. It was a beautiful Barbara Parrish calling me on her birthday. And although we were a little late on APG to say it, let's say it right here. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Barbara Parrish. So anyway, thanks for coming up. Great to see you. And... Uh, Thanks for taking me out to dinner here at Fa Hung. <laughs> well, I guess I said it wrong. So it's Fa Hung. I go so many places, but it is a family show, ladies and gentlemen. Another fantastic evening of an APG meetup and another wonderful, uh, uh, what do I want to say here, main man, Micah? Another wonderful encounter between the, uh, the uh, main man, Micah, and Captain Dana. So... On that note, I'm going to send it back to the studio studio to you, Jeff, and we'll uh, see you here hopefully this weekend. Bye-bye. All right. Sounds like you all had a fun time at It was great. The and, uh, hung. I, I really wish my brother would have said something, but he was just being bashful. bashful. So, uh, yeah, great seeing them. Uh, really nice to spend uh, the day with my brother. He actually... Um, took the day off from work and then we went over to the Allagash Brewery which uh, amazingly enough uh, probably would not it, it's a wonderful tour uh, they spend an entire hour teaching you about how they make their uh, make their beers and uh, discuss uh, 
uh, and different aspects of beer making, which, uh, you know, as you know, I am not a uh, beer connoisseur, but I can tell you one thing. I do love um, Allagash because they don't make any IPAs. hate to say it, but they don't. Um, they, they're, they're uh, white. The Allagash white is a, uh, a coriander. It's a, I think, was it a belt? Yeah, it's a Belgian wheat. Wit, is that, am I saying that right? Wit? Wit, yes. Yes. Which is a Belgian, Belgian wheat. wit, which is a very, very tasty beer. And they also make my favorite beer, which is the uh, Cruo. And that's, I've, I've learned how to say it properly, Cruo. I always call it Cruye or Cruchix, but it's a Cruo, uh, which is a bourbon barrel uh, wit beer. So they take the, uh, they take a, uh, um, uh, a, a, their beer that they make and they put it in the bourbon barrel and they age it for three months, I think he said. Yeah, three months, and uh, comes out with that bourbon flavor to it and a high-gravity beer. So that's one of my favorites. And that's actually, hate to say it, the one, that was the one that uh, almost took out my computer. Oh. <laughs> it was in the glass. That's the one that spilled. Well, thanks for joining us this morning with uh, APG Beer Talk. <laughs> next, so, uh, yeah. next episode, we're going to be talking about the wonderful beers from uh, Wicked Weed Brewing in Asheville, North Carolina. Perfect. So uh, anyways, uh, so I had a very nice day with my brother and a very nice evening with uh, with all three of us. Uh, and that's about it. Right. Uh, the, the trip itself was fantastic. No, no major issues, just some weather to deal with. A um, couple approaches pretty close to minimum. Uh, other than that, it was uh, pretty mundane, just the way we like it. All right. Very good. Uh, let's see. There's another audio file that we... Uh... Uh, kind of hinted at earlier in uh, the uh, mica drop box and uh, let's see it's kind of keeping it up in the portland maine area let's see what uh, this one's all about hello everyone it's your main man micah here and as if you didn't already know here in the united states today as i'm recording this it's thanksgiving day and this year i have a whole lot to give, be thankful for but this week I even have a lot more to be thankful for. As I may have already mentioned, if you've already heard, Dana's little recording. But yes, on Sunday of this week, of Thanksgiving week, Tanya Wyman was up here, and she had a chance to visit with me, and we had a terrific time going to Becky's Diner, coming back to my house for tea, and getting a phone call from the beautiful Barbara Parish, which on her birthday. And then on Tuesday, as you probably already know, Captain Dana was here. And I got to visit with Captain Dana, meet his terrific brother, have some wonderful fa together, and we won't get into that whole story again, but got to visit with him, and it was the third time Dana and I had a chance to be together this year. But today, for Thanksgiving, I originally thought I was going to spend it alone. But then last night, out of the blue, a text message came in, and it said, Micah, I don't want to interrupt, but if you're not doing anything for Thanksgiving... I'm already assigned on reserve, and I've been called up, and so I'm going to be in Portland. And I said, Captain Craig, your family, and what would Thanksgiving be without having family around? So we put together a little bit of a dinner, and here in the kitchen studio is Captain Craig on Thanksgiving Day. First of all, I just want to say thank you to Micah uh, for the last minute welcoming welcoming me into your home and cooking me this delicious Thanksgiving dinner of uh, meatloaf, some green bean casserole, baked potatoes, uh, some uh, 
candied uh, carrots there and uh, I brought up some rolls that Ashley and I had made for uh, our own family get together which unfortunately I wasn't able to make but luckily me I get to see Micah and hang out with him for a little bit on this uh, holiday today and uh, he brought out some uh, fresh wine that he just got that only comes out around this time every year and uh, it's just been delicious and we're already full and we just started about 10 minutes ago and we still got dessert waiting for us and got to try the coveted boom sauce beer which was very delicious and uh, some other local beers and it's been a great time so far and it's just been so wonderful that Mike has been uh, so welcoming and uh, allowing me to uh, partake in this holiday with him. It's been great. It's been my pleasure, Craig, and thank you for coming. Thank you for being a part of my Thanksgiving. And to all of APG and the APG community, thank you for being a part of my family. It's something I'm very grateful for. So, from the kitchen studios here in Portland, Maine, this is your main man, Micah, throwing it back to you, Jeff. Again, that's main man, Micah, master of hospitality. <laughs> yep, and he is. Portland, Maine. He's getting quite a reputation Uh his kitchen so uh, i'm looking forward to one day getting up there that would be great ah yes you you do need to do that for sure all right uh let's see what else um since the last episode did i fly at all i'm trying to remember when was the last show (laughs) uh saturday i think wasn't it oh that's right no i've been i'm still on vacation and uh, yeah yay isn't and it I, great being retired it is um, it's like being retired i like it <laughs> um and i'm scheduled to go out on wednesday of next week and uh, i get to uh, visit with our producer uh, a production meeting of course up in uh, toronto on wednesday of next week so um again we have um our schedules well dana and my schedule on the apg community calendar and other events of significance in our aviation community so make sure you check that out by going to airlinepilotguy.com slash calendar c-a-l-e-n-d-a-r or just click on the appropriate menu item on the menu bar and jeff did you catch it by the way next week we miss each other by by mere hours oh you're going to be in the toronto area as well no, I'm going to be in Daytona the night be- when you're with Liz. I'm in Daytona Beach, and uh, the next night you're in Daytona Beach, and I was just would have been there. And oh, we just missed each other. Good. Wow. Thank God. That was close. <laughs> so make sure you try out my friend's restaurant when you're there. By the way, I will. What's the name of it again? Um. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you wouldn't remember it. <laughs> okay. I, I well, yet yeah, it's uh um. Oh my God! The pig and the pint. Or the no, no, the, no. The no. The, the, the cat oh, and the dog, or something. Yeah, no, like it's that. the two cats. It's the two. The, the, um, <laughs> it's the name of the two cats, and I always, for some reason, forget. I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> okay. remember it here in a second. <laughs> Put okay. me on the spot, why don't you? Pardon me. Put me on the spot. Yes, yes of course. It's, it's fun. It's part of the fun of doing the show. <laughs> yes, it is. It's great. All right. Oh, you know what? We um. Well, here I'll continue with um. Well, I didn't do anything, so there's pretty much nothing else to talk about. Uh, since I uh, had a nice Thanksgiving uh, dinner uh, with my family yesterday, um, uh, last evening, and all the kids are home. Uh, Chris drove up from Orlando, and uh, Natalie and Alyssa live in the Atlanta area, so they were here as well. In fact, they're all here still. And what else? Um, oh, I was um, 
asked to sing with a very small ensemble, like three other voices, um, for the uh, Thanksgiving Mass at 9 o'clock at my local parish church. And uh, the rehearsal time was 8.30. And I woke up at 8.30. (laughs) 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 And I looked at my my phone. Did you arrive in your pajamas? And I went, "Uh uh-oh. And I, I had a slight... Uh, feeling that I should just go back to sleep and just blow the whole thing off. But then I had this terrible uh, picture in my head that uh, the lady that uh, basically is in charge of this ensemble was the only one that was going to be there. And that if I weren't there, then, you know, she was going to be on her own. And I thought I can't leave her hanging like that. So I just quickly uh, showered and shaved and dressed and headed over there. And I got there five minutes before the uh, mass started. And it turns out that they didn't, uh, there were other, uh, it was a family, um, husband and wife and their daughter and, uh, the, the normal, um, part of our, uh, musical group. And, uh, so, you know, she would not have been by herself, but I, uh, was there and, uh, supplied the, the baseline for the, um, for the quartet basically. So it worked out and it turns out that they didn't really have much of a rehearsal anyway. They started talking about something and never really got around to rehearsing at all so didn't really miss anything do you do you sing every weekend yes i need to come over there and witness this oh you don't want to do that i oh, have, i do he's very good i uh, think he's i think he's probably from, set up. I, I bet you he's great i'd love to see this well I'd you probably know we have to come over there with my camera and actually they, they'll even this. let you sing dana but just <laughs> no, be warned no, 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 just be no, warned no. they'll turn the microphone on your uh in your spot down so you, you know what i just remembered um <laughs> i am no longer involved in the music uh, program at all at church <laughs> what church is it that you want to jeff <laughs> and uh, moving on here oh by the way the name of the name is peanut and george's it came to my mind uh, peanut and george's on main street right there in da- peanut downtown and Daytona. george's okay we'll look yes. for uh, peanut and george um we had uh well last week's installment of plain tales uh Nick talked about Boeing or Boeing. Uh, I'm not sure again, still how to pronounce that Boeing, but we have one of our APG community, one of our APG community members. I'm starting to get sick. I think, um, yeah, <laughs> uh, it isn't. He's in Germany. I think I just broke the, the chair and, uh, <laughs> Oh, he uh, sent us some audio feedback regarding the uh, pronunciation of said family name. I always like feedback. Hello, everybody. Hello, APG crew. This is Henry speaking from Berlin, Germany. Um, my best regards to Steph. I'm really, really sorry I missed you on your Berlin stay the other week. I would have loved to meet you. Sorry, I missed you. Um, my best regards to Nick, who I met at the same brewery. Um, I met Steph before. Uh, a big shout out to everybody who has been to the Circus Hotel and its brewery. And hello, of course, to um, Captain Jeff and Captain Dana. Um, getting back to your discussion about the pronunciation, the proper pronunciation of the name Boeing. Um, as you said correctly, the um, Mr. Wilhelm Boeing was an Austrian immigrant and his last name was indeed spelled Boeing. 
So it's like a, a B, O with the umlaut, E, I, N, G, Boeing. It's very simple, Wilhelm Boeing. And since he was an, an Austrian immigrant, I think he spoke with a very strong German-Austrian accent. So that's why I will continue with this uh, conversation with a very strong German accent. The thing is that... As long as we don't have any umlauts available in any foreign language, we Germans or the Austrians or actually, let's say the German-speaking um, fellows, we tend to find a workaround and this is why um, we say OE instead of O with the umlaut. So it's OE. And this is exactly what Mr. Boeing uh, did. And he said, uh, okay, because the Americans don't have the umlauts, we make the OE. So this is very simple. Um, the very uh, simple reason that Mr. Boeing um, made his name very different. But uh, now let's get back to proper pronunciation. The thing is um, that his son, William Boeing, probably spoke very, very good English. And so he stuck, stuck to the uh, pronunciation and to the writing method of OE. So it's like Mr. Boeing. And this is why the name got its name. And this is why we have this very, very beautiful company. I'm quite sure that not every American is really uh, able to pronounce his name correctly. So say after me, please. Booing. Booing. Thank you very much. See you guys soon. Bye. Booing. 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 It, Booing. You know, Nick, I think you're right. I don't think he is German. I'm looking at Henry's last name. <laughs> it's one of those names that has mostly consonants. And a, oh, co okay. a couple little vowels in there. Cieslarsic. Uh, C-I-E-S-L-A-R-C-Z-Y-K. So he's made that up. He might have. Oh, either that, he just put his elbow on the keyboard by accident. <laughs> it might be. That's what it looks like. <laughs> anyway, Henry, thank you uh, very much for that. And you know, I, I wish that I had thought about that when you were discussing it uh, last week, Nick. That we have a very good friend and fellow podcaster who does a truly professional podcast, Marcus Bolter, oh, and yes. his actual last name, his family name, surname. V-O with an umlaut, L-T-E-R, but because of the um, you know aforementioned uh, issues with uh, making sure you get an umlaut over the O, it doesn't always work out with uh, keyboards um, in various parts of the world. Uh, they, or he spells it um, without the umlaut in the E. Well, I guess he does both, but uh, so I, I didn't even think of that when we were discussing the the so it should be Vulta. 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 I don't know. Vulture. Vulture. <laughs> Vulture. <laughs> uh, I did not say that. <laughs> yes. That's... By the way, here's a hint for uh, players. If you uh, hold down the O key on mm -hmm. your computer, uh, eventually uh, up will pop a um, a little window with lots of options, including an O with an umlaut. At least certainly on my Mac, it works that way. Okay, yeah, I'm not sure if it works that same way with the Windows and um, we, the other we don't one. know, but, but I know uh, it does work booing. with the yeah with the, your uh, like iOS devices. Yeah, you just yeah. press it and hold. Sounds like uh, uh, Inspector Clouseau trying to say Boeing, doesn't it? When he says Boeing, yeah, it does. <laughs> it sounds like is, who is this? Henry has a very bad French accent. Inspector Clouseau, Clouseau. <laughs> In, <laughs> Is that your dig? 
one thing we're not good at is accents. None of us. Yeah. Right. Uh, true. And I hold my hand up <laughs> right now because there's a lot of uh, German words in today's plain tales. Oh, boy. Uh, and oh, boy. Here we go. And uh, uh, just throw it at me, guys. I can take it. I'm going to get a few hits this show anyway, I know. I will not say a thing uh, because I am exactly terrible Exactly right. Accents. So uh, just the keep fifth. it coming. I can cope. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, I'll I leave apologize you beforehand. <laughs> Okie doke. Well. Without- I should not call the kettle black, by the way. Because I can barely pronounce English words, never mind any other words from any other language. That's true. That is very, that's true. True. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea. And the Java and me, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right, we're going to talk about the coffee fund, which is the mechanism that we use here at the APG to have folks who want to contribute to the show financially. And Jeff Smith is singing the Java Jive in the background, and uh, because that's called the coffee fund. Pretty simple. Uh, since the last episode, we have a couple of uh, classic fun contributors, uh, recurring payments from both uh, Vigner and Jason. And we also have, yay, we have some new producers. Last show we didn't have any, and this show we have three new producers. We have Justin O'Neill, Frank Eisenberg, and Tony Halloin. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing your last name properly, Tony, but thank you for joining the Coffee Fund Cadre. If you're out there wondering what benefit there is to joining the uh, Coffee Fund, well, absolutely none. No, the feeling of ownership of the show and helping us out because we do have a lot of various costs associated with the show. And uh, we also have uh, a meetup every now and then. So again, if you're interested in becoming part of that Coffee Fund Cadre, head over to airlinepilotguide.com slash coffee captain incoming message uh let's uh, start off with item number one in the feedback folder tom harris just a quick note to say uh thanks for giving my audio the airtime can't believe i just missed out on being the inspiration for the 400th show title Congrats on 400 episodes, by the way. The effort the whole crew puts into making this show is really appreciated, and I'd be lost without my weekly dose. All the best, Tom. His weekly dose? Yes. You get a dose every week? Yeah. Oh, man. A dose of us. Oh, us. Ah, okay. (laughs) So uh, thank you very much for the nice thoughts, uh, Tom. Yeah. All the best, Tom Iceballs Harris. Yes. Wonder why we have that in there. I guess because oh yeah, we were talking about ice balls and that was almost the. Gotcha. Oh yeah, it was. We we very nearly made that the show title if it hadn't already been decided. <laughs> yeah, we had we had fun with the ice balls. Um, oh, we did. We loved ice balls. That's what she said. All right, uh, moving on to item two. Uh, Jordan Baus um, sent us some audio feedback, so let's have a listen, shall we? Hello, APG. This is Jordan. Leaving you guys some feedback 
from the Schiphol International Airport in Amsterdam. And my feedback today is concerning the longevity of the aircraft in the commercial aviation fleet. And I rode on my first uh, Boeing Airbus A330 today and noticed that the aircraft was probably as old as Captain Nick and Captain Jeff combined because the cushion in the seats was completely blown out and the floor inside the lavatory was literally coming up. The linoleum was coming undone. And I know you guys uh, have talked before in the past about the longevity of aircraft in terms of maintenance. We all know that like airframes have a certain lifespan. But I was hoping you guys could touch on like some of the interior upgrades, for example, or interior maintenance. For example, on the Mad Dog. I mean, is the Mad Dog, <laughs> do you guys have wooden seats in there? Or, you know, uh, what's the interior like? Do you guys even have air conditioning? But if you guys can answer that, I'd be kind of interested to hear what you guys have to say. I'm flying on the 747 today, I'm guessing for the last time until the fleet gets retired. That's kind of why I wanted to take this flight. Uh, all right, guys. Have a wonderful day and happy 400. Congratulations. Hope to see you guys at 500. Jordan out. Clear prop. Now, Jordan, I think you have a little difficulty with mathematics. Um, so get your calculator out and add... 65 and 61, and I think you'll come up with 120-some-odd years. And uh, when was the uh, Wright Brothers' first flight? It was not 120-something years ago, so that joke fell very flat <laughs> to me. Well, he only missed out by a decade, didn't he? Uh, a couple decades. Oh, okay. Yeah. A few. Yeah, a few decades is actually more accurate. But um, So that's an interesting question actually jordan um the uh, by the way there are a lot of uh, comedians out there out of work and so i suggest that you uh, let them do that uh, work from now on <laughs> no i'm just kidding that was funny um so the uh interiors of airplanes so you know the the mad dog by the way does not have wooden seats it uh, actually has some pretty nice um interiors um and that's yeah, one way that we chairs, don't they uh, yeah, the we, I think that, uh, the Acme is very smart when it comes to making sure that the aircraft interiors are relatively new, uh, and that they, they swap them out every so many years to make it look like you're in a very nice new, um, airplane. In fact, most of the, if not all of the nineties and 88s that we fly have the fancy led lighting systems, you know, the blue fancy blue lights and all that kind of stuff. So they've made several um, modifications and, and replaced the uh, interiors of these airplanes over the years. You know, the airplane is what Dana 25 to 30 years yeah. old. And depending on, you know, the early 88s and the, and the newest nineties uh, there's a, there's a range there, but, um, you know, you, you get on the airplane and the, the seats are in very good condition and everything is, the only thing that you're not going to see in a mad dog is the in-seat entertainment systems. And Acme had made the, uh, decision to not install them on the, uh, on those airliners because they knew they were going to be retiring them at some point anyway. And, and it's mostly used for short, medium range kind of, uh, hops anyway. So, um, yeah, but it, it that is one of the things that um, most passengers take note of, the uh, the way the interior looks, and uh, not so much the outside of the airplane. But they do also try to make the exterior uh, paint jobs of the airline or airliner look 
somewhat decent, although I, I've noticed lately, and Dana, you've probably noticed this too, that there yes. are some of those chats out there that are going, yeah, I think they should probably put this thing into the paint shop because uh, they're like big pieces of paint peeling off at various places. And again, I'm sure that has something to do with the one I was flying with, uh, flying on last week when I was doing the walk around. I'm thinking, I bet this is one of the ones that's going to be retired shortly. And that's what I was just going to comment on, Jeff. I think uh, I've noticed that you know, as as we're getting closer to the dates of retirement of, of particular airplanes, those are the airplanes that tend to have the less attractive, but still, you know, they they, they do still maintain them, but less attractive uh, paintwork on it, um, and less, uh, you know, <clears throat> I, I'm, and I'm noticing the airplanes I'm actually flying on, you know, the recent ones that they actually still look pretty good. So I think they are maintaining the ones that they're going to keep around for a little while longer. Yeah. I think so too. And you know, they do a great job in, in the interior. I mean, the, the only thing that I really uh, is lavatories. I'm I'm seeing some age with those. Mhm. And, and I think you'll agree with me that a lot of times it's because the and it's usually at an outstation where they uh, are supposed to service the lavatories and they don't or maybe they do when it comes in late at night and then it might sit there all overnight and the next morning they're not smelling very good um yeah and, and and correct me if i'm wrong but i think we have the last blue juice uh bird on on property I, i'm pretty sure i think i think you're right uh, yeah, i don't so think there are any others that uh use that system so that that you know lends to the more likely smelly situation mm -hmm. uh, on our bird versus other aircraft but it just you know it the, the, the seats the you know the uh, you know, interior furnishings is, you know, I'm, I'm noticing more now that, you know, I'm, I'm a nice guy. I put the seat up when I go to the bathroom, uh, but a lot of those seats are just not staying up anymore. No. And, I, and it's one of the things I've actually noticed. But other than that, you know, we, 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 uh, you know, over the, over the history, I mean, I remember back in the eighties, remember that wonderful um, uh, interior that we used to have the orange and whatever oh, yeah. color, the yellow. Yeah. Hmm. But yeah, they, they update the aircraft. Uh, as as often as what five five to seven years I think and maybe even I 10 think so the yeah, or maybe so. even more often than, than yeah that. so yeah do do a really nice job even though it's an older aircraft and by the way um just to kind of keep us above fifty percent um and, and you know this Dana um that uh, the nineties actually have the more modern type of vacuum that's uh, true lavatory system which is nice so you don't nor you tend not to get those smelly lav smells in the in the MD nineties that's very true. So exactly anyway, Funny you should mention five to seven years. I've just been working it out. Uh, my 25 years with Virgin Atlantic every six years, we did our interiors and put new seat styles in. So that's right in the bracket, isn't it? Nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I was actually right about something. No way. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. That Good deserves job. a uh, brass fanfare. Good job, Virgin. All right. Brilliant. Uh, what's, let's see. Anything else that he um, touched upon uh, other than the, his bad humor? Um, no. No. Okay. Let's uh, keep moving on. Uh, Kyle Campbell, fairly new to the show, about 25 episodes in. Welcome to the community, Kyle. Uh, just thought of a couple of you working at Acme headquarters tonight. I'm doing a video wall for the Camp Out for Homelessness, and I think it's actually called the Sleep Out America. Um, 
tonight at Acme headquarters. And this was, um, I don't know, back on the 23rd, I think that he was, uh, writing in not the first time I've been here working, but first, since I've started listening to the show, I was hoping to catch a glance, uh, a glimpse of the DC seven, but I figured it's still on main airport property. Thanks for doing the show and enjoy listening to it, especially Nick's plane tales. Uh, P.S. Love hearing the Mad Dogs all day. I think he, I don't think he's being sarcastic there. Um, Kyle Campbell, welcome again, Kyle, to the uh, community, and uh, uh, thanks for doing that great um, uh, charity work. Uh, the uh, trying to raise money to uh, keep people from lapsing into homelessness or people that are in homelessness uh, to get them out of it. So, uh, bravo to you for that. All right. Uh, four. Grant. Oh, boy. Okay, here we go. Um, so how long ago was it that uh, you dissed the balloon pilots, uh, Captain Nick? Well, uh, long enough that it's uh, taken a typical balloon flight level <laughs> of response. So, you know, several decades, I would say. Oh, not quite that long. No. Uh, slight exaggeration. But anyway... Uh, Grant McCarran from Down Under uh, sent us in some audio feedback, and I think that it will speak for itself. Hey, folks, it's Grant here from Down Under, and uh, I've finally taken some time uh, to get around to figuring out how best to reply to the erstwhile jet captain's comments regarding one does not fly a balloon, one just simply floats around. And I realized there was um, somewhat tongue-in-cheek and a bit of stirring, and uh, given that Montgolfier Day, the uh, anniversary of the Montgolfier brothers putting the first manned balloon into the air uh, on 21 November back in 1783, when the first balloon went up, uh, it was a hot air balloon and it had humans on it. It wasn't the Montgolfier brothers themselves. Uh, there were two other gentlemen on board who were the brave aeronauts who decided to give this a whirl. And that was the first time that mankind had had sustained flight. So... Uh, in the interests of not turning this into an antipodian battle, whereby the volleys go back and forth between the UK and Australia, I thought I'd enlist a mate of mine who can help discuss the topic while also providing the right accent for the erstwhile jet captain to perhaps understand what it is that is being discussed. So there's no disagreements that my accent cause problems or anything. G'day, Andy. G'day, Grant. How are you doing? Not too bad, buddy. Uh, you've got a bit of an accent there, mate. Where are you from? Well, this accent is Manchester accent from the UK, so Northern England is where this accent's from. There you go. I'm sure uh, Captain Nick will find some reason to dispute based on territorial parts of the UK. But um, Andy, I understand that uh, in addition to being a hot air balloon pilot, you're also a bit of a fixed wing pilot as well. Yes, I fly as a hobby, fly a Cherokee, which uh, we set up a syndicate for. So we fly a Cherokee back in the UK and I fly hot air balloons commercially started off private went on to be a job which i never envisaged but and uh, bring me to the other side of the world so chasing summers for the last few years now so doing the european summer and then doing the australian summer so all around for the last seven years cool so many people including my colleague have the mistaken understanding that one just jumps in a balloon and goes floating about at the mercy of the winds and while we can't go against the wind 
and we don't do crosswind landings or anything. We are actively flying. We are using the winds as propulsion and steerage. Our knowledge of the wind allows us to plan a flight, fly the plan, and do what we intend. Would you concur with that? Uh, yes, to a certain extent. I mean, it's very much like sailing. We're using the winds to achieve a goal. So um, if you're flying uh, to a target, you have to really work with those winds and have a plan in your head uh, before you even depart. Um, any pilot, whether they're just really allowing the balloon to fly them or trying to achieve a target, should have an idea of which way those winds are going to take them and whether there's any controlled airspace ahead or built-up areas or ob obstacles along the way. But flying, for example, in Melbourne where we fly, every single flight is flying to targets. Yeah, choosing a launch site on the morning which will achieve make your final target achievable and at the same time giving our passengers those uh, all important views of the city uh, on the way so a lot of planning goes in and we can work with those winds uh, tremendously to get steering uh, out of the balloon there is nothing physically attached to the balloon which will make it turn left and turn right or climb and descend we've got the burners and uh, vent system to control our altitude but we're using the winds at different levels to achieve those targets and as you get more experienced in ballooning you get better at judging those winds and uh, we're talking not you're not talking kilometers precision here we're talking down to the centimeter for some of these competitions that take place around the world when guys fly in from 15 20 miles out and achieve a marker drop within centimeters of a cross put on a crossroads and that's all without steering just purely using mother nature yeah, that's right. The, uh, you've, you've mentioned a couple of things in there, target flying. And the target flying is where, as you mentioned at the end there, competitions. So we have balloon competitions and it's not, you know, who's got the bigger balloon or anything. It's actually getting out there. A judge will set various goals. You've got to take off from this place. And then there's various GPS points around that some of them will have a big cross on them or things like that, where they've laid out a, a target marker. And you have to get a, um, I think it's about 60 gram beanbag weighted marker with a big streamer on the end of it into the center of that target and as Andy was saying if you're not within a few centimeters of the center of the target in international competitions you're out you're gone you're you're, you're not in the running for the top prizes and uh, so I, I've had a go at a couple of these and it's been quite challenging and a lot of fun in one case I was lucky to get within about you know 10 meters of the target but um, that was just a bit of a sport fun fun day competition but uh, look you, you you really are planning your flight and flying your plan. I've had flights where I've said, we'll take off from this place, we'll use the winds that are more left at this altitude, more right at that altitude, we'll go up and down, and we'll fly this corkscrew pattern up to, up to a certain point, then we'll go up and over, use the winds to go over that hill, and then come down and land in that airport over there or that large field. And that's exactly what we did. And my passenger, who was a fixed-wing pilot, was absolutely amazed that it was possible to do. But Andy, you mentioned flying over Melbourne and how that's target flying. Melbourne is, I believe, still the only capital city in the world that has regularly scheduled hot air balloon flights that, where possible, go as close to, if not directly, over the CBD, despite having three airports, one major international, one major executive, and a major GA uh, training field, all within Kui of the city. Uh, what's that airspace like to fly in? Well, we're very fortunate, first of all, to fly in that airspace at all. In many, many cities of the world, it just wouldn't be allowed. But we uh, have an excellent relationship with the authorities. It's become part of Melbourne's culture to see these balloons flying each day. 
and we work very closely with the air traffic authorities at those airports. You've got two that are almost, uh, the zones almost touch, and one further to the south. But it's working with those guys, um, getting clearances to the various levels, keeping clear of their traffic, knowing which are sensitive areas to them and which aren't on particular days and particular wind directions. And just a very, very good relationship, um, which we're very fortunate to have. We don't take for granted, but that's been 31 years, I believe, now um, uh, in, in existence in Melbourne. Yep. Yeah, that's correct. It's, uh, in fact, I, I did an interview with Chris Dewhurst, the, the first man to fly a hot air balloon over Mount Everest, and also the, f- the first person who started hot air ballooning in Melbourne with Balloon Sunrise. Um, I used to work with that company. And then Chris came back and was uh, flying for Picture This Ballooning, which is the company I used to work for at the end and that Andy's come down to fly for, and uh, did an interview with him. And uh, I asked him what's changed since when he started and he said the lack of green space and yet today when we take passengers flying over melbourne they're all like wow look at all this green but it's nothing like it used to be so i imagine you've seen a lot of those changes as well oh definitely i mean we talk amongst pilots of uh, huge experience you know, melbourne's seeing seeing some of the world's best pilots flying because of the skills it requires and everyone says melbourne never gets easier it only gets harder trees grow open spaces get filled um, and you know melbourne's lucky to have the parks it has and the ovals it has but uh, just with the ever in, uh, increasing population all those spaces get squeezed and squeezed and squeezed yeah and the complexity of flying goes up and up and up so you're actually target flying having to be a very good pilot and actively fly the balloon not just float along for the fun yeah, it's amazing the small spaces that you can put a, a largest balloon down in. Uh, when I fly fixed-wing colleagues of, uh, that have flown many, many times and many, many approaches, they're often amazed at the uh, approach angles that we can achieve and the small places that we can land in. Even helicopter pilots, which are used to landing in small places, are sometimes amazed at what we can pull off in the balloons. Um, but it's a, it's a level of skill that, you know, uh, it builds over many, many years. I mean... The whole topic of this conversation as to whether you can uh, direct a balloon to a specific target or whether the balloon flies you. Um, You could argue that some pilots that go out into the open country where there's no controlled airspace, nearly every field is a landing field, you could almost let the balloon fly you. You just control the levels, you let let your balloon fly in its open free airspace for an hour and it's a bit of an adventure because where's it going to take you? And the guys following you in the vehicles, they have a bit of adventure too because they visit um, homesteads and and, uh, villages that they'd never ever seen before. So you can in a certain extent... uh, allow the balloon to fly you but if you want to get to specific uh, specific targets you've got to put a lot more thought into it work those wins and achieve those targets and in place like melbourne have a backup plan too because if you miss that target by 20 feet which doesn't seem much only the width of a tree you're not going to get into that oval and you have to carry on somebody once said to me that balloon is very much like a uh, an analogy to life that uh, the end result Uh, is all dependent on how much effort you put in along the way. So you might say successful businessmen and things have, you know, worked, uh, you know, went through education and run successful businesses and got to be multimillionaires. Well, the same would apply to a balloon pilot. If you put in no effort at all, you're probably not going to ever get to where you want to go to. (laughs) And when we say targets in Melbourne, we're not talking about a cross on on a crossroads. We're talking about the places to land your passengers safely, the small green spaces, but many, many ovals have four 
very high floodlights around the side of them and uh, buildings on approach and things. So we're looking for out, out for all these factors on the way in and way out. So some people that look around Melbourne might think the pilots are trying to show off that one minute they're at 2,000 feet flying in that wind and then the next minute they're on the rooftops and they're not trying to be clever they're using those winds some of them are drainage winds sucking towards the bay some of them are just the natural uh, the natural change of the winds uh, with altitude whereas we're in the southern hemisphere we turn left as we climb and where I come from in the UK we turn right as we climb that's all to do with the rotation of the earth and if you remember the way uh, water goes down a plug hole of your bath that's all to do with the coriolosis effect so this is to do with the turns with altitude and a lot of uh, it's good for fixed wing people to fly with us because when they talk about flying through wind shear and and different winds a lot of them are oblivious to those because you've got a piece of glass or something in, and you don't feel it mm-hmm. on your body whereas in we're in an open basket we can feel those changes in the wind because if you're descending the first thing where those changes hit is you in the basket before it hits the balloon envelope above you and you're anticipating those changes so it's it's very good when pilots experience wind shear and can feel it for themselves and they have more of an appreciation for those approach speeds and things as wind uh, in fixed wing because it can just drop them out of the air suddenly so it's very good for everybody or all these aviators to share different experiences like balloons don't want to fly in thermals but every so every so often they might get the opportunity to go and fly with a glider pilot and really see the power of those thermals so that's the reason in balloons that we only fly first thing in the morning and last thing at night when there is no thermal activity so Everybody uses the weather systems to different uh, the different avail really to get a different result. Yeah, and I've got to agree with you there. I've done gliding, I've done fixed wing. Uh, you know, uh, gliding, you love the thermals, get me up there. Fixed wing, oh, too many bumps, and gyrocopters when I go out to fly in them, it's like what thermals, what bumps, <laughs> just plow through. But there's something mag- magnificent. It's majestic. It's regal. It's an incredible way to fly, and typically the passengers have no idea how much effort the pilot's putting in to keep that flight happening exactly as as they want and i I like your analogy andy about you know it's like life you get out of it what you put into it if you don't put the effort in you're just going to float along but if you put the effort in you're flying and you're doing what you want to do in that aircraft so mate thank you very much for coming through and helping to explain all this using an accent and locations that captain nick will help understand him because uh, you know my accent and my locations nick may have been down here flying jets and all that but it's been so long ago and according to my friends who know him from the raf yeah he's probably forgotten so much by now but uh on that note andy thank you so much for coming and joining the chat you're very welcome grant and thanks for allowing me to speak i mean i would just recommend to any aviator give it a go you know there's many people that are petrified about balloons you know, i'm not going and it's not got an engine and things like that but um just try it. Uh, I think you'll uh, you'll gain a lot from it. And it's like when we fly the people from air traffic control and the people from the Bureau of Meteorology, they have a better understanding of what we're trying to achieve. And when you sat behind a radar screen and telling a balloon, uh, could you please turn left 50 degrees? So actually, no, we can't immediately. <laughs> so it gives people a better understanding of, of what, we, uh, what we can achieve and what we can't. But yes, we can achieve targets when we want to. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, mate. And on that note, my tongue will extract itself from the cheek. Captain Nick, I hope you've enjoyed this. And uh, I really do enjoy our volleys back and forth from one end of the planet to the other. Thanks, gang. Have a really good one. Oh, what a lovely fairy tale. That's great, isn't that? So what I kind of gathered from all that is that, uh, yes, when you're in a balloon, you just float around. 
Yeah, you do. And and if you want one of those $100 hamburgers, okay, uh, what you actually have to do is get in your car with your balloon, drive past the hamburger place, and then position yourself upwind, launch your balloon, and then float back where you've just been. Is is that right? I don't know. Maybe you'll have to send in some more feedback. <laughs> anyway, thanks very much, Grant and Andy. That's brilliant. <laughs> I know really so nice. much more about being a balloon passenger now. And uh, and if you add enough centimeters together, you know, you end up with a you know bunch of kilometers. Uh, so yeah, the centimeter accuracy, I I'm very impressed. So uh, yeah. Oh, I'm just curious. If you miss your landing spot and have to do a go around, you have to go around the entire world before you can make another approach. Oh man, you guys got to know that Nick's always going to have the last word on this. Oh no, I, I well yeah I because Grant's pretty because good at we're, that. We're doing the show. You're always going to have the last word. That's right. Because yeah. uh, if he sends hysterical. in uh, more feedback, I'll just not play it. So, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding, Grant. Nice one, Grant. Thanks very much, and thank you, Andy. Uh, I, he, Grant seems to assume I can understand a Manchester accent. Well, I got one word in three. That's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god oh man it was great seeing you grant in uh oshkosh this year oh, it was brilliant yeah. yeah all right well i think we should move on um looks like we have a little bit of time yet before the best part of the show so item five frank sent us in some feedback hey apg crew i like your show very much and i desperately need to uh, need it to survive all the commuting i do uh, to add a few percent to your 50% accuracy, I would like to write about some details concerning the A330 soap spill diversion you talked about in episode 401, and which is most probably linked to a previously leaking APU. You said that this doesn't make sense. I'm sorry, but I have to correct this. As a, did you really have to correct us? Now you're, you're, <laughs> you're embarrassing us, making us look bad. Gosh, yeah, Frank. Know, oh, it's it's what, to tell us so we can get ourselves above fifty percent. <laughs> well, but it's what's become expected of us. Come on now. That's true. Uh, so anyway, continuing with Frank's uh, feedback, as a A three twenty captain of a European airline, I have unfortunately experienced a few oil smell events that were linked to a leaking APU. Here's an example. After one event on ground with a leaking APU, the APU was set in op and the smell event occurred a few hours later during descent. This is uh, a very common problem and it is known by Airbus at least since 2013. A leaking APU can contaminate the air conditioning ducts and packs in a short period of time. The odors might dissipate thereafter but may once again be noticeable during pack flow and or temperature changes during the flight. The common smell event with contaminated packs occur during the late descent around flight level 100, approximately 10,000 feet, when the packs change its configuration from heating to cooling. I did experience smell events caused by leaking engines too, but only from the IAE V2500 engines and not from the CFM engines. Uh, critical phases are takeoff phase and the first power increase after a long idle descent. Besides wear and tear, there are other causes of APU and engine smell events. One, over-servicing by maintenance. Two, a wrong APU shutdown procedure done by the crew. Before switching off the batteries, the APU needs about two minutes to collect all the oil in the sump. Uh, with remaining oil 
inside the APU in the evening, the next oil service will cause a, an over-service overfilling. This has happened. This has happened many times because this procedure was not known by the companies and crews. Please read this extract from an Airbus technical magazine from August 2013. And then he uh, actually gives us the PDF attachment. Uh, so that'll be in the show notes if you want to check that out. Uh, here's the quote. Oil smell in the cabin can occur at almost any time as a result of a contaminated environmental control system, or ECS. It should be noted that oil smell in the cabin resulting from a contaminated ECS on ground may occur while the APU is not running and can subsequ subsequently generate odors in flight. The most common reports are those of stale odors or oil smells and occasionally visible smoke or activation of the smoke detection system in conjunction with a bleed pack overheat. From this information alone, though, it's not possible to determine whether the APU or the engines contaminated the ECS. From experience, odors associated with a slight APU oil leakage are mo more often reported shortly after takeoff, disappearing in crews, and reoccurring late in the descent. Odors may also be noticeable at the APU start for a few seconds, but quickly disappear. During the operation of the APU with only a slight leakage, odors may not be detectable. However, the oil will be gradually deposited within the ECS, the packs, in areas of cooler temperatures. Following the engine start up and transition to engine bleed air, the odors may once again be noticeable due to the higher associated airflow rates and temperatures throughout the packs. The odors can disappear after a short time due to changes in the pack configuration from cooling to heating, uh, reoccurring again late during the descent due uh, to the packs returning to the cooling mode. Operational experience has also shown that intermittent odor reports, as described, can occur after the source of leakage has been identified and rectified. This is due to the residual system contamination and emphasizes the importance of a thorough ECS decontamination. And so Frank continues, please help me with my communing and never ever stop producing the APG podcast. <laughs> eh? We're going to be doing this for a long time. <laughs> Already have. Yeah. Might, might, might be into my retirement by the time we... <laughs> <laughs> it might be. And by the way, I'm a bit jealous of the MD-88s. Jeff and Dana get to fly all the time. Yeah, you should be. No, just yeah, kidding. Absolutely. Uh, greetings from the good old world, Frank. So, again, that's Frank Eisenberg. And by the way, he is one of the new uh, producers of the show. So, thank you, Frank, for that. We oh, do brilliant. appreciate it. And Thanks, uh, Frank. Oh, like I said, you is booing. Booing. <laughs> booing. Booing. Um, anyway, the, uh, the PDF of this um, uh, bulletin or whatever you call it, uh, it was very cool. Very interesting photographs of uh, looks like a brand new <laughs> airplane. Doesn't have any oil smudges or anything on it looking at that uh, apu bay i mean it looks pristine very cool anyway check it out if you're uh, a gearhead and like uh, to get into the into the in what intimate details of things on airplanes like apus yeah that's about um 50 times more than the information we had uh, in our flight manuals <laughs> Yeah, you'd be happy. You'd have really problem. thick <laughs> <laughs> manuals if you had all that. Yeah, we had like one sentence of that. Interesting, though, um, that 
that yeah. even if you're not operating the APU, that somehow it can kind of migrate into various places and like nooks and crannies. Oil, yeah, it, it can settle and condense on and settle on places. Yeah, and uh, I might point out that I do remember the APU shutdown procedure of the two minute wait, uh, which went away not long after I'd. Uh, started on the Airbus because they modified the APUs, so that wasn't a requirement anymore. Oh. Uh, it was built into, a, they put a built-in timer, I think, the APU to uh, ensure it was powered for two minutes after you shut it down. But uh, yeah, so interesting stuff though. Good stuff, Frank. Thank you very much. Always good to have that uh, resource available to us. Uh, another A320 captain out there mm. listening to our show. We do appreciate that. Um Travis sent some audio feedback uh, regarding museums and IPAs. That sounds interesting to me. Hello, all APG crew and listeners. It's Travis from Australia here. First of all, I'd like to compliment one of the pilots who flew us in from Air New Zealand from Auckland to Sydney a few weeks ago. The landing was that smooth, I walked up to him at the cockpit and said, that was an amazing landing, who did it? The captain pointed to the first officer and said it was his landing. And I said that was absolutely amazing. He then informed me that he did not even know he had landed until the spoilers had automatically deployed on the A320, which was very impressive. I think most pilots would wish they could perform that type of landing. As obviously one pilot was flying and the other one was observing at that point in time, do they both accumulate flying hours in their logbook? I'd like to say thank you very much for your show. And if you are ever in Australia, an hour and a half drive south of Sydney, there is a place called Haas. They have a lot of historical airplanes and their goal is to keep them all flying. They have Catalinas, Caribous, a, and a 747 on static display, which I could probably get you a very good look around. We often go into the cargo hold, into the um, avionics bay, up into the crew rest area. And I've actually put the air conditioning into this 747 so i've managed to have a great chance to explore my way around this aircraft and absolutely love it and if you do decide to come both me and my neighbors have airbnb apartments available on our block of land and my neighbor also owns a brewery and brews many ipas so we can both guarantee you a place to stay some very good beer and a chat my neighbor's also a private pilot i look forward to hearing from you soon travis from australia where did he where did he say he was from in Australia? Uh, I don't know, but I'm gonna I'm gonna get Google Earth and find it. Yeah, we're gonna figure <laughs> out where you live. <laughs> Sounds like a great invitation. Um, Absolutely, love to take yeah. you up on that sometime. That's for sure. IPA um, definitely. And more logbook trivia, huh? Uh, the question, anyway. Um, yes, uh, when we are flying, we both log flying time, whether you're pilot flying or pilot monitoring, because Pilot monitoring, his or her role is just as important, or maybe I'd say even maybe more important than the role of the pilot flying the airplane. Uh, it's a lot of responsibility and and uh, a lot of concentration involved in watching somebody else uh, activate the flight controls or auto flight systems. Wouldn't you agree? Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. And I love the fact that uh, the pilot, uh, or the first officer, said he didn't realize he touched down with the spoilers came out i'm assuming he landed with his eyes closed um and uh I, it's As the first time do. i've ever heard of an australian complimenting a kiwi so that's a new one for Ooh, me as well yeah mm. good well for done. pointing that out 
Um, Absolutely. So, and, 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 you know, I think we all know that sort of experience when you actually, we, we say like we roll it on, or I don't know what some other terms used for or greasing it on or whatever. Uh, so the, it's such a sweet, smooth touchdown that all of a sudden the spoilers are coming out and you're going, oh, I guess we are on the ground. I even who, which one was that uh, that who was agreeing with me, Nick? Uh, that was uh, both of them because both of them uh, were just come back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they they've had that experience of greasing a uh, landing as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. Particularly after they've done something very greasy. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yikes! Say hi to Jilly for us. Hi, Jilly. Sorry, I just got a hat put on my head. <laughs> what? No, what kind of hat is that? Uh, that's uh, the one of the ones that Auntie Liz sent. A very nice uh, Canadian Air Force oh, one nice. with my Royal Australian Air Force badge underneath it with a hornet on it. Very nice. So, there you go. I guess Jilly so. is saying your hair doesn't look very good this morning. Put the put a hat on, <laughs> yes. for God's sakes. Uh, she's just come back. We've obviously found it in the car, I think is what uh, happened. So, uh, yeah, that was uh, fantastic. Uh, as for the invitation to go and look around some knackered old 747, well, can I just drink the beer instead? Is is that okay? <laughs> you can just pretend like you're interested, Nick. Well, okay. Uh, do I have to? Um, let's see. Uh, Dick in the uh, chat room um, is, is uh, adding to the answer regarding the logbook question. He says, for GA pilots, uh, your aircraft are dual pilot. Oh, okay. So he's saying in, in the aircraft that we all fly as professional airline pilots, uh, they are dual pilot required. Hence, both can and should log the time, as opposed to um, an airplane that you might be flying in the GA world where it's not required to have two pilots. I know, I know there are probably some out there that are uh, required, but uh, most GA airplanes out there, just single pilot requirement, so you both can't. I guess that's the way it works, right? You can't log, unless you're like a student and instructor and that kind of thing, right? You get to both record. Excuse well, me. if you, if you, yeah, if you're getting, <laughs> if you're getting dual given, yeah, then, uh, then yeah, you, you're both logging in, or like, for example, uh, uh, instrument, uh, we in, in, technically supposed to have a, a, a certified pilot in the aircraft with you while you're under the hood, you're both logging time as well. So uh, that those are the types of situations I can think of that you both are logging time in a single engine or an aircraft that just requires one pilot. So Dana, if you and I go flying, um, we both can't log the time. Only only I can. No, I'm just kidding. Mm, yeah, I, I can't because yeah, I don't. That's probably. Well, I do actually have a uh, uh, ASEL uh, commercial rating, but, uh, it's been decades since I've exercised that. Well, you, you can always log the time. It's, uh, you know, really the only thing that would be, uh, preventing you from, um, well, not even that it's just an insurance checkout. So as long as you get checked out in the aircraft, then you can log, log that, that time as well. Okay. So, you know what? I'm not really concerned about logging any more time in my life. I mean, I, would, I still want to fly. Don't get me wrong. But uh, I think but I have got enough. <laughs> I think I've got like 22,000, 23,000 hours, yeah. something like that. So I think it's on the cake now. Yeah. I used to log captain's time when I was asleep in the bunk. Now, that's a good trick. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> <clears throat> 
Nick asked the question in the airline scenario is one pilot logging SIC time. Yes, that is correct. One, one is PIC. The other is SIC. That's correct. Very good. All right. In the weeds with the uh, logging time in our logbooks. And uh, I can't wait now to head over to the best part of the show, which is this week's installment of the Plain Tales. And, well, I'll let Captain Nick introduce it. Here we go. The Old Pilot's Plain Tales. Landshut. In the 1970s, Germany was in the grip of a terrorist nightmare led by a far-left militant group known as the Red Army Faction, or the Bader-Meinhof Gang. Its origins could be traced back to a student protest movement of the late 1960s, when the maturing baby boomer generation of Germany began to experiment with their newly found youth identity. They felt alienated from their parents' wartime generation, particularly on the subjects of racism, women's liberation and anti-imperialism. There was anger amongst many who believed that the denazification of Germany had been a failure. They saw former Nazis and no Nazi sympathizers still holding powerful positions in the country. It was in this hotbed of unrest that a new breed of terrorist was born. Young, middle class, well educated and moneyed, they found an identity in the writings of Mao Zedong, Marx, Ho Chi Minh, Che Guevara and the likes. The most radical formed groups who engaged in bombings, assassinations, kidnappings, bank robberies and shootouts with police over the course of three decades. Trained and aided by the PLO and the Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine, their activities came to a head in late 1977, a national crisis known as the German Autumn. The head of the Dresden Bank had been shot and killed, then, a former SS officer, Hans Martin Schleyer, one of the most powerful industrialists in West Germany, was abducted in a violent kidnapping, which left his driver and three policemen dead. Then in October, the crew and passengers of Lufthansa Flight 181 became involved. The flight was on an early series of the Boeing 737 which was operating between Parma on Mallorca and Frankfurt. On board were two pilots, three cabin crew and 86 passengers and their aircraft was named Landshut after the beautiful Bavarian city of the same name. They took off at 11 in the morning on the 13th of October 1977, and it was just another day in the life of the crew, until, that is, they approached Marseille. It was then that two Palestinian men, Zahir Youssef Akash and Wabel Haab, stood up and calmly walked towards the flight deck. Pushing the door open, they drew handguns and went berserk, screaming at the top of their voices. 
They yanked the first officer from his seat and dragged him out of the cockpit and put a gun to the captain's head. In the rear of the aircraft, two female hijackers, also armed, subdued the passengers and forced them and the cabin crew into the rear of the fuselage. What was supposed to be a pleasant flight lasting a few hours was about to become a five-day nightmare. With the aircraft under their control, Akash stormed up and down the aeroplane, waving his gun around, threatening the passengers and hurling abuse at everyone. He shouted loudly that he was Captain Marta Mahmud and he would shoot anyone who disobeyed his orders. All the men were ordered from their seats and searched for weapons and then they went through all the hand luggage, scattering the contents around. Akash terrified everyone, particularly the women and children, as he would suddenly scream at people and hit them hard on the head or in the face, waving his gun with an expression of hatred and anger. The passengers thought him mentally unbalanced as he became more and more hysterical, repeatedly losing his temper over nothing. Everyone feared for their lives. On the flight deck, Captain Jürgen Schumann was told to fly his aircraft to Larnica in Cyprus, but he explained that he didn't have enough fuel for such a long flight and they would have to refuel in Rome first. The hijackers agreed and the aircraft changed course. Following the kidnapping of the industrialist Hans Schleyer, the Red Army faction in Germany had begun making demands. In a stroke of luck, following the bombing of a U.S. Army base in Frankfurt in 1972 that killed an army officer and wounded 13 others, the German police had a tip-off that led them to a small bomb factory. Andreas Bader was one of those that they arrested, and now the Bader-Meinhof gang of terrorists that bore his name wanted his release, along with ten others two Palestinians held in Turkey and a ransom of 15 million US dollars. Four hours later, Schumann landed his aircraft at Rome's Leonardo da Vinci airport, where it was immediately surrounded by Italian troops and armoured vehicles. Now Akash took control of the radio and repeated the Red Army faction's demands for the release of prisoners and the money. Chillingly, he concluded by telling the Italians that all demands must be met by 8 o'clock next morning or the aircraft and everyone inside it would be blown up. The West German interior minister was in contact with the Italian authorities and he urged them to shoot out the aircraft's tyres so that it would be grounded there. The Italians refused, fearing that the hijackers would carry out their threat, leaving the blood on their hands. Instead, they refueled the aircraft and let it depart unscathed, bound for Cyprus. Three hours later, after another awful flight for the passengers, the Landshut 737 arrived in Larnica. Here the Cypriot authorities had arranged for a representative of the Palestine Liberation Organization to talk to Akash over the radio. 
He's tried to persuade him to release the hostages, but this only provoked a furious response from Akash, who started screaming at him over the radio in Arabic, until the PLO man just gave up and left. The Cypriots, as keen to get rid of the aircraft as the Italians were, refuelled it ready for departure. Captain Schumann was told to arrange a flight to Beirut, but they said that the airport was closed and the runway had been blocked to prevent them from landing. Akash just told him to get airborne and they would go to Damascus instead. It was nearly 11 o'clock at night and wearily Schumann took off again, heading southeast across the Mediterranean Sea towards the Middle East. Again they asked Beirut to take them, but the answer was still no, and then Damascus refused them landing permission as well. They tried Baghdad and Kuwait airports, but they were also closed to them, so they set course for the island of Bahrain, over a thousand miles from Cyprus. A passing Qantas airliner advised them that Bahrain Airport was closed, but after travelling such a distance, they were desperately short of fuel. Captain Schumann told his controller that he had nowhere else to go, and despite being told again that the airport was closed, he was suddenly given the frequency of the instrument landing system, and he made an approach. At nearly two in the morning, and with only a few minutes of fuel left, Landshut finally touched down and was immediately surrounded by troops. Akash argued with the Bahrainian military and told them that unless they withdrew, he would murder the first officer, Yugen Vitor. After a standoff, Akash gave them a five-minute deadline and stood with his gun to Vitor's head. The minutes ticked by and the poor man must have wondered if he was about to breathe his last when the troops moved away and refuelling trucks appeared. After taking on some fuel, Captain Schumann was again ordered to get airborne, this time bound for Dubai. As they approached Dubai, they were again refused landing permission, and as they overflew in the early morning light, they could see that the runway was blocked with trucks and fire engines. Circling overhead, Schumann pleaded for permission to land, as they had no fuel to go any further. Eventually the vehicles were moved and he got safely down onto the runway. It was 5.40 in the morning of the 14th of October. As they sat on the ground in Dubai, the conditions on the aircraft were appalling. The passengers had been forbidden from using the toilets, there was little water and no food, and when the auxiliary power unit failed, the air conditioning went with it. The temperature soon became horrendous, climbing to over 60 degrees centigrade and the passengers were forced to strip to their underwear because of the heat. Dubai finally agreed to supply some food and water, remove the rubbish and service the toilet tanks. While this was going on, Captain Schumann managed to communicate the number of hijackers, saying that there were two men and two women. Then, in an awful blunder, 
Dubai's Minister of Defence revealed this to the press, and the hijackers got wind of the information. A cash went mad, threatening to kill Schumann, and for a while his life hung in the balance. In the meantime, the German anti-terrorist team, GSG-9, formed after the disastrous attempt to free hostages taken during the 1970 German Olympics, with British SAS assistants, were being positioned at Dubai. But before they could take any action, the aircraft was refuelled and Captain Schumann was forced to depart. They had been in Dubai for nearly two days, but now they were off again, this time to Salala in Oman. The authorities in Oman refused landing clearance, so now Akash ordered the land chute on towards Aden International Airport in Yemen, near the mouth of the Red Sea. Aden also refused to allow them in and had blocked both runways to prevent a landing. Out of options, after another flight of more than a thousand miles, Akash ordered him to land on a totally unsuitable sand strip beside the main runways. Completely exhausted in a marvellous feat of skill, Captain Schumann got Landshut down, and they bounced and jolted their way safely to a halt in a cloud of sand and dust. Aden authorities wanted rid of the aircraft, and Schumann convinced the hijackers that they should let him inspect the undercarriage and engines for damage and plead for fuel from the Yemeni authorities in the tower. This took him some time, and when he returned, Akash went berserk, accusing him of betrayal and waving his gun at the cool-headed German pilot. Before he could explain... Captain Jürgen Schumann was forced to kneel and Akash shot him in the face at point-blank range, killing him instantly. Afraid that the Yemenis might now decide to storm the aircraft, as soon as it was refueled, Akash dragged First Officer Vitor back onto the flight deck and forced him to take off immediately. Despite having had no sleep for four days, Jürgen Vitor dragged his badly damaged 737 off the runway at Aden and was ordered to head down into Africa, bound for Mogadishu in Somalia. He had little information to go by. The airport was right on the edge of his only map of the area. He convinced the hijackers that their only chance was to land unseen, so he turned the aircraft lights out and flew at a non-standard level where he didn't expect other aircraft to be. Unbeknown to him, the GSG-9 unit that was trying to save them was following in another Lufthansa aircraft a little way behind. On board Landshut, the passengers were agitated and very frightened. After their captain's appalling murder, they were convinced that they would die in some way or another. Little did they know that the German Chancellor, Helmut Schmidt, had spoken with the President of Somalia and got permission to attempt to storm the aircraft. Help wasn't far away. First Officer Vitor did a good job landing his tired and damaged aircraft at Mogadishu. And whilst they were positioned in a remote part of the airfield, 
GSG-9's aircraft touched down and was kept out of sight. Akash told the first officer that his job was done and he was free to go, but he chose to remain on board with his crew and passengers. The dead captain's body was thrown down onto the tarmac, and protracted negotiations started between Akash and trained negotiators in the tower whilst the assault was planned and practised in every detail. On Landshut, the terrorists planted explosives and drenched the passengers with alcohol in preparation for the aircraft's destruction. As darkness fell on the fifth day of the hijack, snipers moved into position and prepared to carry out Operation Führersalber, fire magic, their very first live operation. At midnight, the rescue began as a recce team with image intensifiers crept up to the aircraft. When they discovered that a cache was with Harb in the cockpit, the assault team swung into action. They assembled at the rear of the aircraft a blind spot and then moved stealthily forwards, using black ladders to gain access to the wings and doors. At 2am, the assault began. Somali troops were ordered to start a bonfire in front of Landshut, which drew the attention of the two men in the cockpit. Then the British SAS special forces threw flashbangs, stun grenades, a brand new piece of equipment at the time, and the GSG-9 team stormed through doors and escape hatches. One of the women terrorists ran to the rear with a gun and was cut down immediately by automatic fire. As a passenger described, I saw the doors open and a man appears. His face was painted black and he starts shouting in German, We're here to rescue you. Get down. Disorientated and confused by the stun grenades, Wapil Harb staggered out of the cockpit and collided with the other terrorist woman as she ran for her life. Hub was hit by a burst of rapid automatic fire, some twelve bullets entering his body, and he died on the spot. Then Akash came out of the cockpit with two hand grenades. He was immediately shot dead, but the grenades rolled free under the first-class seats where they exploded, luckily not doing a lot of damage. The final woman terrorist opened fire from the toilet where she was hiding, and a GSG-9 man returned fire, hitting her in the chest. She screamed and surrendered. It had taken just five minutes, and it was over. A radio message was sent to Chancellor Schmidt in Bonn. Four opponents down. Hostages free. Four hostages slightly wounded. One commando slightly wounded. After 110 hours of captivity, being terrorised by gun-crazed killers, forced to live through hell, the passengers and crew were deeply traumatised, and there were medical teams and psychologists on hand to start their recovery, which, for some, would take weeks, months, even years. When news of the successful rescue became public, several imprisoned members of the Bader-Meinhof gang, including Andreas Bader, committed suicide 
but Hans Schleyer, who had been kidnapped, was murdered and left in the trunk of a car. Jürgen Schumann, the murdered captain, Jürgen Vitor, his first officer, and one of the cabin crew, Gabrielle Dillmann, who was much praised by the passengers and dubbed the Angel of Mogadishu, were all awarded the German Federal Cross of Merit. Although Vitor returned his in protest when in 2008, terrorist Christian Kla was released from prison on probation. About two months after the hijack, Jürgen Vitor went back to flying and by coincidence, the first aircraft he would take airborne was Landshut. Following his remarkable five days of survival during the hijacking, Lufthansa credited him with 104 hours of overtime. Wow, what a story. I know, crazy, right? So, the 104 hours of overtime, that, and that's all Lufthansa? I, I don't know. That that was a, a oh. quip uh, made by Eugen uh, 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 on one of the interviews uh, oh, I okay. saw. Um, he had only just come out of the flight deck when they stormed the aircraft. And he said he didn't know quite why, but he had a sixth sense that something was about to happen. So he left the flight deck and went back into the cabin. And um, when he returned, he saw that um, some of the instruments had been struck by bullets just where he'd been sitting. So if he had been on the flight deck in his seat, he probably would have been killed. In fact, he was showing this... uh, this central attitude indicator from the 737. He flew with a, a very neat bullet hole in it. Wow. Uh, so I'm going, wow. Yeah, what a lucky man. Yeah. But he was uh, he was obviously very strong mentally because uh, he was back flying again very quickly and, and finished off a good career. So it, it obviously didn't worry him. I think for the passengers down the back, it was an absolute damn nightmare. Yeah, it sounds like it. I can't imagine. And sadly, this sort of thing has not ended. I've just this very second heard from my son who works in London at Tower Bridge that there was a terrorist incident in there uh, only a few minutes ago, uh, and the police have shot dead a man who was wearing a uh, explosive jacket. I think that's turned out to be a fake one, but uh, he was... Um, stabbing people we don't know exactly what's going on yet because it's very much breaking news but i'm just delighted to know that my son is okay because it it, london bridge is right outside his office uh, where he works in london and the station that he goes home on has been closed and as has the area been locked now so he's gonna have to walk home i think tonight what a mess yeah unfortunately that's the world we live in right I'm afraid so. Yeah, terrorism is a tool used by unscrupulous uh, uh, gangs of murderers, uh, and they try and hang some kind of name on it that makes it sound as if they're legitimate, but they're not. They're just murderers. Yeah. All right. Well, again, another great plain tale we uh, enjoyed, even though it was a, a hard story to listen to and mostly sad. Um, it was still. Uh, uh, Thank you for reminding us of that, 
event. Oh, right. you're welcome. I I did in fact have a lot of requests from uh, mainly from our German listeners. Uh, mm-hmm. Who, uh, wanted to hear that story. It's taken me some time to get around to it because it's been quite hard to uh, decipher a lot of the documents, which mm-hmm. some of which are very poorly translated into English, and sadly, I don't speak good German. So well, you, you put so you... much... Sorry? I think... Dana, were you saying? No, no I didn't say anything. Oh, I'm sorry. I interrupted somebody. My bad. No, it was just that uh, my uh, my pronunciation is awful as well, so... I couldn't even decide how to pronounce Lanschut. I uh, I think I pronounced it five different ways. <laughs> so sorry about that. Lanschut. 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 I don't know. Uh, I don't know the Germans do the S H sound when they're those letters are together or not. Um, perhaps somebody in the chat Lanschut. rooms can tell us. Lanschut. Lanschut. I don't know. I wasn't certain, but uh, anyway, I'm sure you know what I mean. But yeah. Uh, Yes, a very sad uh, ending for the fine captain uh, who had done a marvellous job up to that point. Uh, and what an awful thing for the um, Dubai Minister of yeah, uh, Justice or whatever he wants to. Oh, yeah, come on, people. Yeah, think, think. Mm. Yes, uh, exactly. I want, so you didn't really go into uh, great detail of how long it, uh, it, it, except to say that it was a long time that the captain was out there inspecting the landing gear and that kind of thing. Do you know about no, how very long? hard to find exact information yeah. uh, because uh, there's just not a lot of, there's not a really one really detailed uh, account of it. Ah. Uh, it's all, and it, because it was a five day event, a lot of uh, the details I was interested in, interested in just not included but uh, by the time we'd done a walk around and gone to the tower and come back again this bloke sounded uh, the main terrorist sounded so unhinged mm-hmm. that i don't think it would have taken much for him to have got angry enough to kill someone wow all right well let's move on uh, with some more feedback what do you think let's go sorry hi we have some more audio feedback a lot of audio feedback in this show which we love by the way um, and this from someone that uh, most everybody listening to this show is familiar with. He is the host of the Plane Safety Podcast. We call him Pip. Hi, guys. It's Pip. Uh, just a quick bit of feedback on a miserable gray Wednesday morning. Oh, sorry. Just out for a run. I'm not really feeling it at all this morning. Just trying to get into my marathon training. Uh this gives me an excuse to stop just listening to 399 episode 399 just a very quick uh, point on window shades obviously as nick has already said uh it's uh, obligatory to have window shades up for takeoff and landing uh, for safety reasons uh and nick said it's important for the cabin crew to be able to see out in the event of a you know evacuation or, or an incident of some sort uh, but equally i would just add that it's equally important to be able to see in to the cabin for the rescue services firefighters to be able to come and see in if there's been a crash or something and they need to cut their way into the fuselage uh, it would be really unfortunate and ironic for you to survive a plane crash only to have your uh, head inadvertently cut off by the firefighters c- cutting their way into the cabin that's it i guess i better keep on running see you later bye run pip run <laughs> well said Pip I yeah. hadn't thought of that very good point uh, I had not considered that at either and the cutting your no. head off kind of wow thanks for that image yeah I, I just finding that just 
bit hard to get out of my brain now. <laughs> uh, as Pip would probably say, hey, don't lose your head. Right. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. Uh, again, please check out that uh, great podcast, Plain Safety Podcast. All right. Um, eight. Dear APG crew, I'm currently listening to episode 401 and your response to listener Thomas and his thoughts about whether to take up gliding or microlighting. I do both and can recommend both. I agreed with your views, particularly Captain Nick's comments on the nature of gliding. It's a good social activity, but there's a lot of time invested of relatively limited flying. It's definitely a group activity. Like Nick said, it's pure flying, very peaceful, and the glider becomes an extension of you. Regarding microlights, in the UK, the maximum takeoff weight is 450 kilograms, and common models have an empty weight of around 270. This means that you can carry 180 kilograms of fuel and people um, around 395 pounds. Clearly, a couple of hefty guys will not be able to fly. However, two slim men should be able to take on two hours worth of fuel, plus a decent contingency. Flying at around 75 to 80 knots, you can go places, particularly in the UK. The syllabus for a UK microlight rating is pared down compared to other ratings in a standard PPL. The medical requirements are also less stringent. Unless you have certain specific medical conditions, you simply self-declare as being fit. As a relatively inexpensive form of powered flying, microlights are the way to go. As you mentioned, the aircraft are incredibly sophisticated and comfortable for their weight. In fact, rule changes in Europe might soon push the maximum takeoff weight up to around 600 kilograms. The disadvantage is that the license is a dead end. There's no night or instrument ratings, and hours on microlights currently don't count towards revalidating PPL licenses or hour building. Great fun, though. Best regards, Stephen Hitchin. And he says he's currently at work drinking from his Acme Airlines mug. As Captain Nick and uh, perhaps Dana is as well. Interesting. I am. See? Right here. Yay. All right. Fine looking mugs there, gentlemen. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm glad to hear that we gave some good advice, especially Captain Nick. Yeah, I, I mean, I was going, oh, yeah, I'd really like to have a go at that. But, uh, yeah, I like the idea. It, my problem is that uh, if I climbed on board, uh, I wouldn't be able to take any petrol. Yeah, you wouldn't get very far. No, wouldn't get any far. Probably get airborne, turn around, land again. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> Let's do that again. Fill it up. We're done. Yeah. Uh, if it's you, imagine me. Uh, which no, I'm not, I wasn't going there. I wasn't yeah, going there. Yeah, well, <laughs> hey, you, you don't have to go there. I did. Yes, right. you did. Good man. Um, hey, speaking of uh, weight and cheese, Andy, item nine, says... Oh, I uh, like cheese. Yeah, me too. Especially Swiss cheese. It's good stuff. Mm. Hi, APG crew. To introduce myself, I am Andy Orzula. Uh, for a long time, my interest in aviation waned, but I am so glad it's back thanks to listening to your podcast for about two years now. Since then, I have joined Greencastle Aero Club in Oxford, Iowa, attained my private pilot certificate, joined the board of my club, and have loved every minute of it. Also, both my parents worked for United Airlines. My dad worked in IT, and my mom was a crew scheduler for flight attendants. It's great to hear airline stories again from Nick, Jeff, and Dana, and also Steph's tales about the general aviation world that I am now part of. 
Anyway, my question is about the Swiss cheese model of accident causation. I've had experiences in the past where I've made big mistakes. Thank goodness these mistakes have not been while flying. Look back at these mistakes and in hindsight, or I look back at these mistakes and in hindsight, there are usually several steps leading up to that mistake. My question is, as a pilot, have you been in these situations but have closed the holes in the cheese? Are there any cues or skills you use or have been taught to mitigate these risks? I realize some of this is taught in private pilot training, but how does airline commercial or ATP training expand on this? Clear skies and all that. Andy Orzula. Thank you, Andy. Welcome to the uh, APG community. Well, it sounds like you've been part of it for, for a while, but thank you for sending in the feedback and uh, posing the question about the old Swiss cheese uh, holes. Who wants to take that on? Well, I'll kick off. Okay. Um, our procedures and our um, our learning and our checklists and just the way we conduct ourselves on the flight deck are our main armor, as it were, against um, making a mistake that will line up a hole. You'll find that most mistakes that involve uh, aircrew often have followed um, a failure in a procedure or just doing a checklist item or uh, making that kind of a a mistake. That's often one of the holes that lines up. So just making sure that you dot all the I's, cross all the T's, and you're meticulous about the way you prepare yourself, conduct the flight, and uh, follow the standard operating procedures is usually our best defense uh, in my mind. doesn't stop every accident, of course, but it prevents a great number that uh, have an element of failure of uh, of the crew to do something uh, appropriate um, in it. And uh, you mentioned checklists, and, and Dana and I both um, are required to mention uh, when present, risks that uh, are involved in certain maneuvers or uh, modes of flight you're about to take on. For instance, the uh, initial briefing that we have as a crew together, the abnormal briefing, we talk about um, you know various ways we're going to conduct uh, flying the airplane and performing abnormal procedures and that sort of thing. Uh, also, uh, when we talk about the runway and the departure and that phase of flight, we talk about what risks might be out there that uh, could affect us. And then we also suggest ways to mitigate the risk. And same thing with the approach briefing, uh, same sort of thing. So that kind of keeps it in our, you know, in the forefront of our minds uh, that there are, you know, risks involved with this profession. And, uh, you know, it's important for us to identify them, and uh, come up with a game plan for how to mitigate them. Right, Dana? Uh, I'm, I'm frozen. That's okay. Well, are you cold? You want to get a blanket or something? No, my picture... We can still hear you, mate. Yeah, we can and hear you fine. Very attractive oh, I wasn't, I wasn't sure. I mean, I, I went to try to say something, and uh, of course I had my mic switch. No, we can, we can hear you fine, and oh. it just looks like you're giving me the evil eyes, is what it looks like <laughs> on the video. That, that, that actual... <laughs> I looked at this, and I was like, oh my god, that looks... Terrible. I'm thinking I, as I'm I as it. I'm talking. I'm thinking, man, I'm really doing something that's irritating, Dana. <laughs> as I'm talking, I'm taking a screenshot of that. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Wait, wait, wait. Uh, which way? Which way to look? Oh, okay. Hang on a minute. Let me set up again. Uh, hang on a minute. Five, four, three, two, one. Yeah, got it. 
<laughs> All right, good. Is that now a show title now? We're having fun. <laughs> Dana's evil eyes. Yeah, evil eye. My God. Stink eye. That's one one ugly <laughs> way to be frozen. And then, of course, my two, two eyes are the white. That's, that's, white. Why, that's why you have to always be smiling and look pleasant, just in case your video freezes. <laughs> My God, it's terrible. <laughs> no, it's not that bad. Actually, yeah, uh, Jeff, I've just expanded my screen up. Do that again, will you? Okay, wait a minute. Hold on, hold it there. Yeah, got it. I thought you froze in there for a second. <laughs> oh, <my God>. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, yeah. uh, did you want to add anything to the Swiss cheese uh, holes model of... You know, everything has, as as you know, Andy, everything has to line up perfectly for uh, for an accident or an incident or something to go wrong. Uh, and not all all time does it end up as an incident or an accident. It could just be um, a simple thing in the Swiss cheese model that can line up and just miss a checklist item. Um, and that can lead to, to problems down the road. So yeah. I think uh, both uh, Nick and, 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 and Jeff covered that really well. Um, but that is the exact reason why we have checklists and that's the exact reason why we go through training is to try to mitigate that. And, and, and it begins, as you mentioned, at the foundation of the beginning of, of training um, as a private pilot. And, and it's important in that it, it really just it's a reiteration of how important it is to have a good instructor that, that you choose to work with uh, right from the get go, because uh, you build a, build um, a foundation to to uh, to learn from in 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 and build from so that way that you you know when you're out there flying even as a private pilot um or in just everything in life i mean think about uh, what what leads up to car crashes and everything else that that uh, it can it can be surrounded by so uh jeff <laughs> you are just you're no, you're talking. You're so I'm, man, Jeff. I'm putting your picture up there while you're talking. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to exit from this right now. <laughs> but so, anyways, Andy, it, you know, it, it, that's my thoughts on it. It, it. It's it's you know, from a professional perspective, for us, uh, the Swiss cheese model is, you know, obviously something we want to avoid. Um, but you know, building the foundation early on in all the way through all your training. Uh, it's important that you have somebody that's going to reinforce that, you know, just a simple thing uh, that I learned as a private pilot. Even with how familiar I became uh, with my own airplane, I had a Piper Warrior at one point, and of course, I memorized everything because, you know, the checklist was, was pretty uh, mundane on, on, a, on a, a small single-engine airplane compared to, you know, heavy transport aircraft. Um, but I had to force myself every time I got in the airplane to use that checklist because if I didn't, uh, you know, the complacency uh, part of a uh, any uh, Swiss cheese model is what, what really gets you in trouble. So um, I even had to battle that. I'm getting hungry talking about the Swiss cheese. Yeah. I, know, so I, know. I have some crackers. It's a lovely nut, nutty flavor, Swiss cheese. Yes, it is. It is. Speaking of nutty. <laughs> um, I don't, sorry, Gabriel, it, it was just your turn in the, uh, lineup of the <laughs> feedback. And so I'm not saying that you're a nut, uh, just trying to use a funny, um, uh, segue. There we go. 
Segway. Right. Segway. Segway. Yes. Isn't that what a uh, two-wheel thing you drive around? That is, uh, yes, that's the name brand, S-E-G-W-A-Y, but the actual word that I'm trying to use is S-E-G-U-E, I believe. Uh, Gabriel, number 10. Hello. After a break, I started listening again to your podcast, and right away I felt at home. I don't know if I you ever discussed the following event, but if not, it's very... Uh, worthwhile to read a very sad story about the hijacking of Lutanza flight 181 in 1977 oh wait a minute that sounds a little familiar to me it does now there's one of the kind listeners that suggested we do that oh. the plain tale that's just occurred so how about that there's someone i can thank uh gabriel yeah thank you uh especially i'd want to point to the co-pilot who was threatened to be executed several times flew the aircraft alone after the captain was killed every time i get goosebumps when i read about this tragedy Thank you for your podcast and always clear skies and wind from the right direction. That's that's the way you got to be all the time, Dana. With a yeah, a, a very happy. If the wind changes looking... now, he's going to look like that forevermore. Yeah, I maybe like tone it down a little bit, <laughs> just a little bit. <laughs> uh, looks like I, you're I, about. Yeah, it, looks like, it looks like you're sitting on the toilet doing something. I don't know. <laughs> now oh, take boy. the photo, Nick. <laughs> uh, uh, no, I don't, you know, I don't no. want to ever see that Break again. Break the camera. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, thank you, Gabriel, for uh, one of the several who recommended that uh, Nick cover Lufthansa Flight 181 in the Plain Tales, and, uh, which he has just done. So, um, Item 11, Texas and Lashok. Uh, greetings, Captain Jeff and APG crew. As I write this, I'm sitting in a brand. Didn't we already do this? Uh, oh, he did. He talked about the uh, New Orleans airport, but I guess now he's uh, expounding upon it a little bit yeah, more. Is that right? He might be right. Okay. As I write this, I'm sitting in the brand new terminal for Louis Armstrong, Louis Armstrong International Airport. I gave my impressions of the exterior layout last time, and now I can opine on the rest of it. There you go. He just explained it. Somewhat cynically, my first thought as I entered was that it doesn't take long at all for the concrete outside to look like it's been there for years. Scuff marks, wads of gum, cigarette butts, etc. Hmm, very nice. Uh, just trying to get a feel for the Bourbon Street area, the, the French Quarter of uh, New Orleans, right? Uh, inside the central hub of the terminal is all one open space with a kind of half level inside where the ticketing and check-in stations are with security and baggage claim on the ground level. Overall, it gives a much more open feeling, and all the airline counters are clustered together instead of most here and a few over there as it used to be. Once past security, you have access to all the gates, so I took the opportunity to explore a bit. Immediately after the checkpoint, there's a kind of a food court with two large restaurants on either side, while smaller ones fill in the spaces behind them. Uh, here you have an excellent view of the area between concourses B and C with runway 11-29 beyond that. Uh, so you can watch planes coming in and out as you chow down. You'll be happy to know, well, if Jeff and Dana wind up here, they'll probably be on duty, but Nick and Steph at least, that there are numerous and frequent watering holes with at least one in each concourse, with the exception of concourse A, which doesn't have anything aside from the gates and some artwork. So no reason to go out of your way for that. Unless you like art. Shops and restaurants are located in the middle of the concourses, leaving the outer walls largely unrestricted for gate space. The wall space that is taken up is mostly restrooms and mother's lounges. And in concourse B, there's a small performance stage set up. It's named 
after Louis Armstrong, after all. Uh, have to have music in there somewhere. If you want to watch the planes taking off and landing, Concourse C, the uh, eastern section, Delta and United, has views of both runways. Overall, the new terminal has a very modern look and feel. That can be a good thing or a bad thing, but I think they make it work for them. And, of course, it's nice to have seats in the gate area that don't have chipped and chunked upholstery and no frayed carpeting. Well, give it time. The one downside I see is that all the planes are now well away from the road. Now, in the big scheme, it's probably better that way, but it was fun to be able to drive down Airline Drive and find a British 787 parked facing the road, kind of like they're letting her watch the traffic so she doesn't get bored. That reminded me of someone's dog poking her nose over the fence to see what's outside. What's going on out there? Anyway, given the volume of traffic during this week, they were saying that this would be the real test of the new facilities. And from what I can see, it's holding up. I have not encountered any serious bottlenecks. Things are running smoothly. And while the crowd noise has steadily risen, there have been no crushes. Uh, Holiday travelers seem pretty mellow. So there is my impression of the new uh, MSY, uh, Moissant. That's how they're promoting it. I hope you all had a good Thanksgiving. This is the Texas Anne LeShock signing off. And then he adds a postscript. While at the airport, I ran into a novel about Britain's gunner girls. I didn't get, uh, I didn't get the book, but when I went to try and look it up later, all I found were a few online sites. Most of them little more than a page in length, accompanied by images of young women manning World War II anti-air cannons. Very little information from what I could find, but if you ever run into more information on it, it might be worth a plain tale. And uh, this was sent from his iPad. You just want to let us know that. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Yes. yes. So do you, have you ever heard of Gunner Girls? Nick? Well, I knew... Uh, uh, uh... Ladies who joined up in the various services performed all sorts of functions. They weren't allowed to be on the front line, but I'm guessing that if you're um, being bombed, there's absolutely nothing wrong with putting a few ladies uh, to man the anti-air artillery. And uh, I had heard, I knew it happened, but I didn't know any specifics about it. But uh, I'm not quite sure. Uh, well, I have to read the book to uh, find out. But uh, Mike writes in, hi, Jeff and crew. Just a quick update on our Royal Canadian Air Force Snowbird CT-114 Tudor jets that have been enjoying, question mark, a rest at Peachtree City Airport in Georgia. Now, the reason that these jets have been taking a rest or respite uh, in Georgia is that they were featured in an air show uh, down at the Atlanta Speedway to the uh, south-southeast of the Atlanta International Airport, south of Atlanta. And while they were getting ready to perform their show, one of the Snowbirds, uh, Snowboard, Snowbird 5, I believe, uh, piloted Mel- by... Melted, by the looks of it. Yeah, it actually, yeah, after it hit the ground and, and caught on fire, I guess. Uh, the um, pilot, uh, I'm trying to get his name here, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Mike French, no, that's the commanding officer. Um, uh, Kevin, Kevin. Duman Grenier. Grenier. Uh, Snowbird 5. Anyway, uh, he was forced to eject from his Tudor aircraft shortly before the team's performance in Atlanta. 
Now, there's a picture that I included in the show notes that uh, was taken from the Atlanta uh, International Speedway, and all you can really see there is just um, a cloud of dark black smoke kind of wafting some up from barbecued, the barbecued uh, cows. Yeah. Well, you know, it looks like he managed to avoid the cows, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, you can't really tell from that if there are some dead cow carcasses in there, but apparently nobody was injured on the ground. It wouldn't matter. All the rednecks came in and took the roadkill and barbecue <laughs> barbecue exactly correct <laughs> uh so yeah check out the pictures in the uh, show notes but uh apparently it doesn't still has not um indicated at all in anything that i could find anyway uh, why he ended up having to or was forced to eject from the uh, aircraft by the way this um bombardier ct-114 looks uh, reminds me a lot of the trainer that i was an instructor on in the air force the t-37 i know it's not made by the same company obviously cessna made the t-37 jet but um it it, it shares a lot of the same characteristics like side by side um seating and uh, straight wing uh, etc and um anyway I guess they're not using them anymore for uh, training purposes, but I guess the uh, the snowbirds still use them in their demonstration flying. But uh, since the September 5th, I believe, um, occurrence, uh, the snowbirds have been parked at uh, Peachtree City, which is on the south side of town. A lot of uh, Acme pilots and pilots from other airlines live down that way. Um, but um, really pretty place down there. Um, and it looks like now they are finally uh, have been given authorization to fly, you know, wings level, not not any kind of aerobatic flying from Georgia home to Canada. So that's a good good thing. I guess the investigations are still ongoing. Well, I'm very glad he got out safely. Yeah, me too. That's for sure. Uh, let's see. This is from the uh, the commanding officer of 431 Air Demonstration Squadron, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Mike French. Uh, he, I'll read the last paragraph. We want to thank the Atlanta Air Show for its timely and professional response, the first responders from Fayette County and Henry County who attended the scene, and the pilots from the Army Aviation Heritage Foundation who launched a helicopter to check on Kevin's well-being. We also uh, owe thanks to our colleagues, the U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds, who did not hesitate to jump in and help the team as we dealt with the situation. Finally, I want to thank my dedicated team of professionals who maintained their composure throughout this incident. So, there we mm. go. All right. And um, finally, we have some feedback from Jonathan. And he says, Dear APG crew, long-time listener, first-time caller. Uh, as someone trying to become a commercial pilot and someone interested in ab initio training, I've been meaning to write in for a long time for your opinions, but I've just heard episode 400 and heard Captain Dana give it his thumbs up. So have you got any advice for someone with a stage three interview for a large training provider? And the second thing he says is for Captain Nick, I was at your talk in Manchester in March, and like everyone, I came up with a decent question on the way home. <laughs> Not well. <laughs> at the uh, at the talk, no, um, no, they were they were pretty uh, vociferous. So yeah, I got plenty of good questions while I was there. Well, that's good. Uh, you mentioned that the accident attrition rate was high during training. How did that affect you personally? Did it change the way you thought about your flying or whether it was the career for you? All right, that's an interesting uh, point. Uh, now, I I 
I'm a very different man now than I was then. And I think the whole point about uh, why so many of our armed forces uh, are populated primarily by young people is that I don't think you've developed the same fears that tend to occur later in life. Uh, you're much more uh, likely to just carry on regardless and accept uh, the losses uh, that occur around you and be very sure that it would never happen to you, even though, of course, that's a pretty uh, false uh, attitude. Um, so, no, uh, we mourned for the short while that young people tend to and then moved on, although the memories are still there. Um, we never really let it affect us. I, I do remember when I was doing my very uh, initial training in a civilian flying school, uh, we had a crash right on the edge of the airfield, which killed uh, a couple of people uh, right in plain view of us all. Uh, I would have been a teenager. And um, that afternoon, after the fire had been put out, and uh, uh, our instructor, our instructors, made sure we all got a 10-minute flight. And I thought that was an interesting thing to do because he said i don't want you guys dwelling on this so why don't we all get airborne and uh, do some uh, work just for 10 minutes come back again uh, just so that you will have the confidence to do it again tomorrow uh, and i think that was probably not a bad way to treat it because had we sat and dwelt on what had just occurred for you know or perhaps a weekend or whatever uh, we might not have had the same attitude when we came back to work so i thought that was good yeah, many good points there. Uh, you know, when you're a kid uh, or a young adult, um, yeah, you, you kind of feel like you're immortal, you know. And I remember the the occasion when, like, somebody at your grade school or your middle school, high school, uh, is involved in a car accident, accident or something like that, and they and they lose their life, uh, and it, how stunned everybody is is like, what? How can that happen? What do you mean, Joe is not coming back? Um, so. Yeah, it must be part of our human nature that when we're young, we don't really think about all the risks, um, or, you know, to our lives around us. And uh, we just assume that we're going to be around forever. And then as we get a little bit older, <laughs> we start realizing, wait a minute, you know, we are not immortal. We will, you know, our lives here on Earth will end at some point. So Exactly. Uh, Dana, he asked about the um, yep. inter uh, interview advice for stage three interview at a large training provider. you have any advice for, uh, for John? You know, I, I don't know exactly what that is. Um, but as far as what my, my thought on that would be, Jonathan, is just be yourself um, and just, you know, talk to them just like you talk to anybody else and just be professional. And that's that's really the only advice I have for you on that. I don't know if if you send in some information as to what the stage three interview and or for example what stage one and two were like, what what the, the details were, or what the stage three interview is going to be like, then maybe I can comment further on it. But that's really all I have to say on it. Yeah, I have no idea what um, yeah, no stage idea. three entails. But you know the, the reality is is ab initio pro program. If if you're going to get somebody to uh, you know, even though you have to sign a, a training contract, or, or obviously, or and or have to work for that company, you might want to vet that company before you uh, decide to go into an ab initio program. Um, you know, I, I was just watching 
um, I download something on uh, Amazon uh, about uh, the pilotless cockpit. And uh, that was one of the things that they were talking about is uh, the um, Lufthansa Training Academy that they send uh, their cadets out to Arizona through an ab initio program. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, obviously, if you're going to work for a company like that, uh, really good choice to do that. Uh, if you, you know, I think American Eagle, I'm not sure 100% because I haven't looked, done any research on it, but they may have an ab initio program. So, obviously, the flow through from Eagle up to American, you know, that would obviously be a, a good a good avenue to go uh, because they do have that flow. So, you have to be careful who you who you're going to uh, do that with, um, and, and just vet them as much as they're going to vet you. Um, so that way you make good choices in, in your career, because you certainly don't want to be stuck someplace you don't want to be. Very true. Hey, I'll take the bonus question. He has a bonus question for us. Uh, does anyone know which APG contained Miami Hicks song about the mad dog? Or do we have a Miami Hick index somewhere? <laughs> yeah. I have a lot of spare time to create a, an index. Um, so I, of course you do, Jeff. Come on. Yeah. Anyway, um, be a Miami Hick desk. Yeah. Well, you know what? We might have a um, volunteer out there who wants to create an index of Miami Hick. Um. Anyway. Um. So I'm thinking that he is talking about that hip hop uh, thing that uh, he had uh, created for us, the puppet, and doing the hip hop song about the Mad Dog. Is that the one you think that he's talking about? I know you play one of them uh, after most of our shows right. uh, on the podcast version. So presumably not that one. Otherwise, yeah, I have, it. that was more about how I used to be a good pilot, but now yeah, I'm doing right. the APG show. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Wait a minute. Um, but anyway, if this if that's the one you're talking about, the hip hop one with the puppet and all kinds of stuff, that was in episode 367, Expletives and Such was the title of that show and it's about the one hour and 23 minute mark ish and um also i can't believe this is uh jonathan again also i can't believe xm 607 by roland white isn't in the apg library and then i put a little note to the side it's because it's your library out there folks the apg community library if if you have a a book that you think belongs in the APG library, then send an email to our librarian, Tiffany. And you can do that, Tiffany, at airlinepilotguy.com. And uh, Liz, our producer, has sent us a note as well saying that she has sent the suggestion for the library to our librarian, Tiffany. So, again, check it out on the APG site, uh, airlinepilotguy.com slash library. And you'll see a a lot of great reads and uh, it's all um, organized and maintained by Tiffany. And for those who don't know, uh, XM607 was an RAF uh, Vulcan bomber uh, that uh, will com- was in Operation Black Buck. Uh, I did a plane tale about that, mm-hmm. but you'll probably already know that it was uh, the raid on Stanley uh, Airfield in the Falklands Island flown out of... Um, Ascension Island, many thousands of miles away, that involved a huge and complex set of every fueling uh, scenario just to get a one Vulcan down there with a payload of bombs to try and uh, stop them from using that airfield. So, great story, a great airplane. But that's uh, XM607. Great uh, plane tail as well. So, uh, well I'm sure you, you can do a search uh, for that. Do you recall what the name of that one was, uh, Nick? 
Mm, no, not that often. Time. Okay. Sorry. Anyway, all you need to do is just uh, go to the website, uh, hit the uh, Plain Tales uh, web page, and uh, do a search from there, or just scroll around and look for some pictures and titles that might apply to that particular mission, which was fascinating. And uh, I think that'll do it. Uh, we cleaned out the, unless I, did I miss anything here? Did I skip over no, anybody? Okay. So. Thank you everyone for sending in feedback. You can do that many different ways. Um, just plain old email works great. Um, it's feedback at airlinepilotguy.com. We always love hearing your voices and uh, you can do that by using your smartphone and uh, they have apps on your phones uh, and tablets to record audio and then just attach it to the feedback email. Uh, we can also go to the um, website and the Contact Us page has a link to our SpeakPipe account, and uh, it'll use whatever microphone is attached to your computing device, and you can record some audio that way as well. Although I think it limits you to about 90 seconds or a couple of minutes, something like that. So if you're long-winded, you should uh, use your, your smartphone uh, app to uh, record audio, but don't make it too long, okay? So we can have more uh, feedback from others. Uh, let's see. We're also on uh, the social meds, and uh, Captain Nick, would you like to tell them about that? Certainly. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. Uh, we're using the handle at APG Crew, and we're on Facebook, uh, and that's uh, Airline Pilot Guy. I'm just trying to think what our Instagram, I think it's the same as the Facebook one, isn't it? I uh, think it's Airline Pilot Guy as well. Airline Pilot Guy as well on Instagram. Yeah, we never mentioned that, do we? I never go there, no. actually. <laughs> oh, uh, uh, yeah, Steph's on there quite a lot, and I have a reopened my account there now, so, so I keep an eye on it as well. Okay. And uh, also, we're on, we're everywhere, aren't we? Uh, on Slack. And uh, hang on a second, let me uh, check to see if Hillel's ready. Hillel? Hillel? He's been very patient this you ready? week. Mind if I use your razor, Jeff? Yes. Was that yes, he can? Because you know what he's going to say, no, don't I'm, you? I mind. APG <laughs> oh, <okay>. <laughs> listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K. Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1 and see you in Slack. Thanks, Hillel. And uh, again, uh, just point you over toward our website. Uh, Arash um, maintains that for us and does a wonderful job. A lot of great stuff on it. So make sure you check that out. And also a big shout out to our producer, Liz, in Toronto, who is uh, enjoying her new abode. So I guess the control room, control center in uh, the new condo in uh, Toronto is working out. And uh, that's good to hear. And until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. I'll feed his aim, my friend. Bye-bye, everybody.
good, eh? a good good pilot till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats airline not a guy I fly Cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy 